No, 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 no! Hi, this is Dale Lear, designer of TRS-80 Color Baseball, and you're listening to Coco Talk. This is Coco Talk the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Calore computer. It's time to drop your socks, grab your real-time clocks, and let's rock. Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the Tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world. Welcome to Coca Talk, episode 272. We have a special guest from <laughs> Grant Plato. Coco Talk is rocking the 8 bit world, keeping the tiny flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop. Because Coco Talk is rocking the 8 bit world. <laughs> Hello and welcome everybody. Oh no! Oh, <laughs> Perfect timing. <laughs> None of the balls. Oh, uh, Curtis, you want to uh, do the intros while I try to? Uh, they are being stood on over top of this thing. <laughs> That's true. Endlessly suspended over the spikes. Probably not the way you want to go. Oh, that's unfortunate. Can you mecha up? Curtis, you there? Nope. I can't hear Curtis. Uh-oh. Sorry, I was <laughs> muted. <laughs> so the reason we were getting some background bleed here is that the Amigathon 2022 is actually going on right now. It's a 12-hour game-playing marathon that the Amigos host every year to raise money for the Children's Miracle Network. Uh, so we'll be plugging that a little bit later in the yeah, game on news. It's a great cause. They've actually got a little bit of a medal now that they've actually raised over the last five years. It's been running over $20,000 for the uh, Children's Miracle Network. It's pretty good. And I think they're over 3000 already today, last time I checked. it was on the GBA. Mark B, I think if you go down and take that the blue slider, you'll be fine. So go down. Yeah, but I don't see the one that's for... The uh, that feed. I only I only got microphone and system sound. Oh, and we need the system sound. Maybe just stop that stream. Then for now, we'll just talk about it when we get to that part of the news. That's going to get pretty distracting. <laughs> oh no! All right, I'll, uh, there we go. I'll keep. Well, it's still running. I'll keep working on it here, though. You, oh, you keep you talking. Yeah. <laughs> you don't like. You don't like. Okay. I think I found it. Yes, I found it. Oh, there you go. I know. I found the button I had to check. Yep. <laughs> this is the way we work, folks. We, we fix everything after the show starts. Yeah. Well, that's because we decided on doing this. I thought we were supposed to this. fix it in post. Mistakes, right? <laughs> While you wait. That's because we decided to do this right at airtime. <laughs> <laughs> and by we, we mean you, Mark. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't planning mm -hmm. a lot. the dice. <laughs> 
And uh, we got a commercial on there anyway. So uh, what the heck? Yeah, it's a good cause. So, I mean, it's, it's understandable. And they're not exactly uh, strangers to having stream problems. <laughs> As I'm sure Ken and other people that are members of their Discord know. <laughs> anyway, welcome to the show, everyone. Oh, yeah. uh, I'll quickly go through intros, or do you want to do it, Mark? Nah, you go ahead and do it. Let's preserve my voice. Okay, because uh, the screen's a little bit shrunk here, so I don't know if I'll be able to see everybody. But anyway, up in the upper left corner, from what I see, is uh, Rick Eulen. Welcome, Rick. This ain't enough of a clue. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to say Billy Gibbons, but... <laughs> yep. <That's laughs> uh, next to him is our resident Apple guru, Mark Overholzer. Hey, glad to be here, as usual. And after that is our streamer who is having some technical difficulties, and has, I, we're going to blame that on the sickness he's had this week. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Mark Postley. Hi. <laughs> uh, I don't use a box of Kleenex. I use a roll. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I thought that was for your cat puking on your bed. but okay. No, that was all this morning. <laughs> that, that, that that's, that's why it's in the wash. That was Mark okay. fix it in post B. Yeah. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. That should be our motto. Uh, next up uh, from his uh, wild out in the woods <laughs> cabin is Ken Waters, alias Canadian Retro Things and our host of the Game On segment welcome Ken. hello everybody if i'm getting through on my crappy internet so far so you're, good you're not even red or green today you're not stuttering well what 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 <laughs> actually i think most of the bandwidth is taken trying to render your shirt <laughs> <laughs> ah now on to the middle row on the left side the uh maker of the new control panel you'll be seeing in the new ease of use and i'm probably going to screw up your name now because all of a sudden i'm playing out fred provanja correct uh that's right hello yes Ooh. hi everyone <laughs> <laughs> next after that this guy is so important he has his own show segment ron delvo of ron's garage fan nope not, you're muted he's, i think yeah and, sorry Sounds and don't, best. And don't forget a new YouTube channel every two weeks. Yeah. And Facebook page. <laughs> don't be jelly. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't think of if you can't think of good groups to make, don't do it. <laughs> well, I can't, so I don't. Next to that, and he's pretending to be in the uh, tropics, so the temperature-wise is probably actually higher than the tropics. Um, we have our own organizer of Cocoa Fest. Brand new to the job this this past year, Grant Leedy. Hello, everybody. But since we have another Grant on the show, we're just going to call him Greg. So <laughs> then there's me. Hi, everyone. Hello. Um, uh, I'll skip over our special guest here for just a second. Next to that, the the guy who's pretending to be a circuit board or design schematic or something is uh, James Diffendaffer. Hello, everyone. Also, he's uh, uh, been heavily doing some pretty cool stuff on the MC10 lately, too. So, And next, the Lord of the Floppies himself, and also one of the regulars on TeamSpeak Irregulars, which is an oxymoron, I guess, David, or sorry, Sir David Ladd. Why, hello, everybody. Are we ready for today's show? I hope we are. Curtis, stay out of trouble today, please. Let's no. get this train wreck moving. Staying out of trouble is just not my thing, David. Sorry. Sure, that's David, and it's not Jason. 
Yeah, there's an extra okay. bit of enthusiasm that David has that Jason just can't match. Oh, okay. I can use it to my bleeding eardrum. I'm yeah, sure most go. people that <laughs> met me in person knows my enthusiasm. <laughs> okay, and the next step, and since he's on a bit of limited time, we're actually going to talk to him first before we get into the game on Challenge and the news and everything else, and that's uh, Mr. Grant Blado, who's now the new newsletter editor and has his first new issue under his belt. And that's basically what he's here to talk about. We'll organize a full interview with him later on. But um, Grant, if you want to want to kind of talk about the newsletter, uh, what's been your experience getting it going? What what plans do you have for it? Um, that type of thing. Sure. Um, first of all, thanks for uh, welcoming on, me on here. It's the first time on the uh, broadcast, although I've been following this show for over a year now. Um, I can't went to the recent Cocoa Fest um, for the first time in my life. As many years as I had wanted to get there, um, coming from Minneapolis as a youngster, I was not going to be able to make it. And uh, reconnected and heard about the community through Cocoa Talk here. And um, at the fest, I decided to try and volunteer some of my services. So um, I talked with some of the uh, board members of uh, the Glenside um, community and um, offered, you know, I have a background in graphics and computers and printing, and I felt like that was the best place for me to try and uh, give back to the community. So this um, taking on the newsletter, it seems sort of a daunting task, considering that Glenside is one of the longest running computer um, clubs in the country and may actually hold that title. Um, I have gathered a large um, group of people who have been able to help me kind of orient myself and um, learning the ins and outs of each little, uh, I wouldn't call them factions, but groups that gather online. We've got at least three um, podcasts, whether they're live or streamed, um, regularly and um, all of the news sites, including the Nitro nine and um, ah, there's a there's a bunch of them that I'm going to be trying to highlight in the newsletter. Um, but one of my goals in um, taking on the editor role is to take this newsletter and bring it into a place where it puts a context for all of the news that happens daily because Curtis, you gather a lot and Salvador kind of compiles and, and edits that and helps me um, put together a huge part of the newsletter. And everyone else in the community who has something they would like published that will end up being in a kind of a permanent repository is how I see the newsletter of kind of a history of what's happening now, as well as kind of that context. Uh, we can find everything online in like a daily uh, feed that we have, but those over time, they're either going to um, become obsolete, go offline, or end up in just an internet archive. And I think having a um, context and uh, curation of some of that important things that are happening in the community is, is uh, a valid and important part of keeping us alive. Yeah, discoverability is a big thing because, I mean... Uh, Facebook's rather infamous for that, where you can post something that looks really cool. Everybody's really excited about it. Somebody joins a community a month later, they'll never see it. They'll never even find it. Right. Stuff just right. disappears, you know. So, so having something much content, a place that people can just buried. go to and know they're going to be able to get the stuff is, is good. Right, right. And one of the things that I would love is if there are people who have 
um, things to contribute, um, whether it's something neat that they have an idea for or they're implementing. Uh, I know sometimes people want to keep things close to the vest until they're ready to announce it, but I'd be happy to either do a preview uh, or a uh, after view, you know, after you've released it to kind of have something that's um, concise and, and um, announcing whatever is, is important. Are, are you viewing that more as a product announcement type of service or are you um, viewing that as a review product of the product? Or, you know, I, I think like the, the, you've done a good job here with um, uh, the control panels, the nitrous OS, Nitro OS 9's um, updates that are happening. But um, yeah, if somebody wants to announce products, is but not so much as advertising, but just to like let the community know the things that are available to us. Um, I, I love some of the video tutorials that I've looked at for some of the assembly as well as basic stuff. Um, I'm still getting my head around the kind of uh, decades of gap that I've had. Um, I started working with the Cocoa, I think in 85 or 86, I just was dying to have a computer and that was an affordable one and Radio Shack was nearby. And uh, I'm- what, what kind of hardware do you have now? Uh, so uh, after the fest, it's funny. Uh, my wife said, I said, look, if I go here, it's going to be really hard for me to not come back with some hardware. And she said, well, what can't you do? With an emulator and i said well that's true you have made a good point and i went to the show not intending to have anything um and i after the show i just said look this is going to have to happen i enjoy working with the actual hardware and the kind of connectivity that you make with that um so i i got a coco 3 on an auction for a really good deal and um mark marlette um, got me the memory upgrade and uh, CPU to the 6309. And so I have a 512K right now. And the 6309, I had actually pre-ordered the Cocoa SDC. And I'm doing some of the testing with the Cocoa I.O. board right now. So those guys are, there's a community of people as well as the um, Cocoa Nick that are trying to bring this networking um, to the internet on uh on a level playing field for the cocoa. So I'm excited about that. Did you ever save some of your floppies from back in the day? Oh yeah, no. Um, <laughs> I, the, the whole setup that I had was, you know, I, I think I sold it for just about 300, you know, and that was uh dual, the FD 502. Uh, I didn't have a multi-pack. Um, I had a 512 cocoa three at the time and I had upgraded it. Um, I just, wholesaled it all to um rick's trader i think was the the like a newsletter that yep. kind of facilitated at that time and i gratefully regret it um the only surviving software that i have was um a published program in rainbow and it was i think the november 1990 issue it was a tetris style game loading a ship and it, they named it stevedore uh for the ship loaders and the dock workers. So if you people want to check that out, that was the first thing I went when I found XROAR online for an emulator to see if I could get that running. And it was kind of fun to see it. So, As a Cocoa 3 program specifically, I presume? It was Cocoa 3, yeah. And, um, you know, I look at it now and I think it's sort of simplistic, but looking at a, a high schooler putting this together, I was pretty happy with the results, so. Neat. 
Just wanted to mention too, we got a comment from uh, David Lord. He said, I saw the news newsletter. Uh, nice job. So, yeah, thanks. I've had some really good feedback and um, I, I'm probably going to move away from using Word as the construction of it that will give me a little bit more flexibility in terms of um, lay, layout uh, guidelines and standards. And um, I'd like to incorporate more um, links to some of these articles that are online, as well as having the summaries. Um, if people noticed, uh, there was a few places where you could click a link to like play the um, Ghost Rush online, just straight to the XOR. Um, and I would like to have th some things more like that um, to be able to highlight whatever news might be coming up in the community. So are you using like professional desktop publishing software like InDesign or something? Or? Um, well, I would prefer that. I don't have the licenses for it. So I, I'm debating using this open source um, layout software called Scribus. Um, and it's been around a very long time. It's uh, comparable to... In design, or actually, it's comparable more to like the Quark Express publishing okay. um, software from ten years ago. <laughs> but it, it has some really amazing flexibility, and it has some scripting and automation that can happen. So, and it's yeah, available I, on all platforms. That's that's the other important thing. I feel like if I'm going to pass this on, that that structure is something I want anyone to be yeah, able. Yeah, you to don't say. want a platform centric so that somebody's you know into some different operating system. They're going to have to do everything over from scratch again. Right, right. So other than the fact that you're planning on having things like live links, which I think is a great idea, um, do you have any other you know, longer term plans for the newsletter, like other directions you want to take, like say the presentation of it or, um, well, or what's what's involved with it? What 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 is actually going to be in it type thing? Yeah, I think I'm still kind of in the, the place of like getting my head around what things I'd like to have. But I think um, trying to have some regular things that are published in addition to the club's activities. Um, that it, That's kind of the real premise of the publication. Um, having articles like uh, Rick Eulen just put in, he's put in another kind of installment on a basic 09, I believe was the... Yeah, he's the, doing a whole series basically, so... Right, right. And I feel like when we uh, as a community can put things in um, and support one another in terms of knowledge you know there are a lot of people who've been here for the gap that i've been i've been out and know way more than i do and if they want to share some of that knowledge um i'll help to uh put it in a presentable form and um I, that's one of the things i'd like to do is kind of bring some historical perspective of where things have come and you know i look at this hardware and my goodness um we have gone from pre-internet to like, there are people here developing this software today. And I mean, I, we see the enthusiasm for it as well as the hardware um, that people do. So that's what really excites me is seeing someone taking and either maximizing the resources we have or making uh, additions to it. Yeah, it seems like uh, sometimes <laughs> you think of it and it can happen. It's kind of scary. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And There's if you ever, if you ever, uh, want to take any of my pictures and throw them into um, maybe fit, fit a spot where it's empty, you yes. know, <laughs> you're well, actually, I, yeah, I, I have, uh, I've been following, um, there was a, I think it was Stevie who had put in um, kind of art things. Mm -hmm. And I think that could fit in the art and graphics yeah. uh, of the computer. And I will, I will be expanding that from where it was to have a little bit more 
um, placement. I was my first run at this. Um, I wanted to make sure that we got it out on time because it was a little bit delayed. So, isn't it yeah. cool that length is not really a problem now? Yeah. That's right. That's right. The PDF and having these electronic deliveries really make it convenient to put this all together. It's just a matter of size. Um, I don't want to make it unwieldy for people. Um, one of the things I'd love <laughs> to see, I think our Coco could try for something like rendering a PDF. I, I'm not the programmer to make this happen, but uh, when I look at the resources that PDF came out of, it wasn't much greater than where we are with the Coco 3. So I think it it would it would have to be rendering down graphics quite a bit. But well, we're probably an HTML of the PDF kind of yeah. thing because we're already working on HTML rendering a lot. So it would be a good way to go. But right. still, yeah, you can always remember magazines continued on page 364. Uh, you know. <laughs> In a corner beside an ad somewhere, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and I have been highlighting some of the community who are offering services or software or um, just as a convenience of like having the community to be able to find them. Um, I, I was struggling to, to get my head around who sells this, who sells that item as I was trying to gather the pieces for my, uh, my setup. So. And you're still planning and publishing it, uh, what, four times a year? It's, it's our goal is to always have four every year. So um, since this issue came out late, I'm going to accelerate and it's probably going to be every about approximately every two months to the end of the year. And then next year, we'll just go more on a quarterly schedule. So, okay. yeah, I, I mean, the transition between in. Stevie and you, I mean, there was you know, a bit of a gap there. So, yeah, we kind of yeah. doubled behind. Yeah. And Bob Swoger stepped in and did one issue um, back in the, the winter edition that came out late last uh, early this year for late last year. So. A few years ago, um, I took a stab. I, I have uh, some graphics background too, but I took a stab at trying to uh, recreate the um, an electronic form of uh, the rainbow, and it was so demanding and so tough to do. And I was using like Corel Draw, you know. And um, sure. I, I put together a PDF of uh, maybe you know a few pages, but it was very difficult to do. And uh, really didn't get any help so i was kind of floundered with with it you know and then a couple of other people tried to pick up the ball and it got dropped but you know it, in a way the thing you're doing is similar to a, a rainbow only much more abbreviated and uh right. yeah ooh. one of the one of the bylaws you know i i think this is historical is to say we shouldn't be competing with other magazine publications and I, I, frankly, I don't know that there are any that are currently focused on Coco. Oh. So we're filling the gap of information and I'm willing to expand this as a publication. Um, and I think that I have the ability to um, to bring about more of what your your uh, vision was, because I think Stevie started with kind of a cover uh, that highlights right. the themes or the, the feeling of that um, issue. And um, that is one of my goals, is to um, bring it more in style with a uh, periodical kind of publication. And, and I realized as I was doing the layout in Word here, um, 
the style of doing like call out boxes where you're doing programming or you have, you know, we do it on HTML online and you have a, a different font and kind of blocked out areas. I'd really like to make sure that those stand out. Yeah. And so we have call outs and things. So there are actually a couple of those in the next submission. So get going. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, since well, you since you have the floor here, is there anything you want to solicit people for? Uh, is there any specific topics or types of things that you would like people to submit that uh, you would like in in the future newsletters? You know, um, I, I, I your summaries of news are are really comprehensive. You you get through, and I I was feeling like, is there any places that I can find um, globally? where there might be Coco news that we could use and, um, and highlight. And um, I've uh, actually, I think Stevie may have put in place one of these uh, Google searches. They're automated. I can't remember the term they use, um, but I was considering using that for some keywords to make sure that these uh, anywhere that it's published with TRS-80, uh, Coco, but um, that I would kind of get highlighted that I could look at those sources and see whether it's a part of a material. But if anyone has submissions, um, sending them to newsletter at glensideccc.com will get to me. Um, as well as if you had feedback on the newsletter or things that you'd like to see, I'm I'm game. That's what I do sometimes just to put content on my Ron's garage. I'll go and uh, just hit Google for a cocoa or whatever. And then if you go down about eight pages or 10 or 15, you'll see an article that someone like all of a sudden they got a wild hair and thought about, you know, I used to have a cocoa and then they go ahead and write a little thing up about how, you know, back in the day they had one and they'll, you know, talk about it a little bit. I, I think that's really cool to see. Right. Oh, and so um, Curtis, I think when you're asking kind of what are my, my directions, there is um, there's a lot of people who have lots of experience and, and, I want to remember that we also are reaching out to the kind of extended community of vintage computing, and there will be people who will be joining the Coco community out of interest, but don't have that history and background. And, even and they have no idea about the Coco. Right. Thing. Yeah. So I really want to have kind of uh, startup articles that can kind of describe, hey, uh, color basic is this, extended color basic is this, when you have a certain machine, how are they configured? And yeah, what can an SDC do for you? And that kind that's of thing. exactly right. Highlighting the kind of uh, key components that you're going to need to utilize and maybe maximize the equipment that somebody new to Coco will, will be able to use. I think as a community, that would be a good thing for us all to do because it will only help expand kind of the interest. Lowers yeah, the I, barrier I to entry because, yeah, a lot of people didn't have a Coco. I didn't get into Coco until 2012. I'm, I'm new here. Yeah, and just from being at BoatFest, I mean, there's some people that have joined our Discord uh, from their community since then that, you know, didn't know much about the Cope at all. It happened to be one of the featured uh, three machines that had a gaming competition going on. So people were kind of interested in it because it wasn't as common as a C64 or an Atari 8-bit or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, I always felt like the underdog, and I still do <laughs> yeah. in that regard with Coco. So That's us. Yeah. yeah. Not as much of an underdog as, say, the Dragon, but yeah. Yeah, right. Honestly, though, I, th 
honestly, I think the cocoa community is way tighter because of being the underdog, being the yeah, uh, literally fourth class. I mean, because it was the Atari 8-bits, the Apple II, of course, snobs, and of course, the Commodore, mass, mass produced. You know, the, the cocoa people, this community is way tighter, seriously. Right. I, and actually, I think that that coming out of it, it's it's also a part of, uh, I think the, the hardware that was here gave, lent itself to exploration in ways some of the other systems just didn't. They were more of a off the shelf. Here's you go. Here's your here's your game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who uh, got a cocoa early on and their whole life um, came from that. I mean, they, yeah. they were in the computer industry and did cool things. And now they look back and think, oh, yeah, I used to have one of those. You know, and they'll come and visit us. Right. Well, so um, I, I would call myself one of those people. I didn't get into the electrical side of things, but the software side of things, clearly, uh, by, by everything I learned, even though those... Uh, the specifics of what I was learning when I was young aren't the same. It was all those principles of, of um, structure and data and all the concepts. Types. Yeah. And yeah. those concepts that like brought me into uh, working, you know, building a, I mean, I built PCs when it was in the late nineties, probably and or early two thousands. Um, I, I've gravitated towards uh, a Mac unit because of the graphics background that I've had um, and honestly, I OS 10 just blew me away when it first came out. I was dying to have all of that Unix underneath it. And um, I love using that today. So um, I, that's one of the things at the show that really struck me. Um, I'm failing on his first name, um, Strick. Uh, Henry Strickland? Yeah. He, uh, I, I got connected with him. And I think you might have pointed me there, Curtis. I was like, I would love to see uh, Python working, and I know that the constraints of the memory and everything wouldn't work. And you, whoever it was that gave me the news, was like, "Hey, he's got something going." And sure enough, he had like a Pico or a, um, a really small limited set of Python working, which I haven't yet tried, but um, I'm curious to see how it works. Here, here is another example of something that Henry Strickland has done recently. If you can see my face. Um, uh, no, we just see Grant, so Mark will have to switch the camera. Oh, well, no worries, and it's not really that important. But he's got Dig going on the Cocoa, so I know your uh, I know your name, sirs. I know your IP addresses. I know your SPF files <laughs> on a Cocoa, which I think is just an absolutely. There right. we go. We can see it now. So, what were you saying? That is. Uh... Well, so here's all the information on, uh, say, Mark's server at Play Networks, and here's your IP address, Mr. Um I don't even know my IP address. <laughs> well, it's 206-163-230-1808. Um, but in any case, uh, this is all the stuff that uh, Henry's done on the Cocoa in the last week or so. So we now have functional name server software. And although I don't think we could do much with an SPF file at this time, I know where to look. <laughs> so, yeah, dude's cool. Build it one step at a time. Yep. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to talk to him as much at the show as I would have liked there, but it was the first time we met in person. Same with Grant and me, for that matter. But, uh, there's quite a few new faces for me to meet for the first time. It's cool. Yeah, well, I guess that's that's all I have for, for now, um, at least as a highlighted um, guest. Um, I'm planning on, I'm tentatively trying to get to the Tandy Assembly 
this fall. Um, I was I wasn't I was trying to debate between the VCF Midwest or Tandy Assembly, but I I feel like I would want to be in the Cocoa community or the Tandy community because I think they have Model Fours and the earlier yeah. ones also. Yeah. So, so what do you do for a living? Uh, I work for a label printing company, and I do all of their technical. Um, a lot of variable printing um, with a high-speed inkjet, and I prep plates. Um, they're flexographic plates, so if anybody's in the print industry, it's a yep. polymer. So, yeah, yeah. we used to do the airline boarding passes with it. Huh. Do we make badges? Uh, we do not do badges. That's a, kind of a specialty. <laughs> Don't Although, no um, thinking badges. <laughs> right. Um, you know, if they were just, we, we do a lot of pressure-sensitive labels, so... Um, my background, I've done that for decades now, but I kind of moved from doing that pre-press technical graphics through um, networking. I, I managed their Linux server, which was mail and file servers for a while. We outsource it now. The company's grown and they've had a, a technical contact who does that for us. So anything else internal desktop support, it's all mine. So... This is going to be a side question. It has nothing to do with Cocoa at all, but I was just curious what, what inkjet printers are using, like Cytexes or? No, um, it's a company. It's called Domino. And, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, Domino yeah, I did does, some work with there too. Yeah, with these them. are, they're crazy. Uh, for, for anyone who's interested in kind of that technology, the printer that we have is a single ink color, but they have full color ones. Yeah. Um, it's a UV ink that's cured with uh, UV dryer that lights with lights and heat. And man, stick your arm under it, get a good tan instantly. You would, yeah, you would. Is it stinky? They run, they run 250 to 300 feet per minute. Yeah, um, that's what our Cytex did too, is rated for 300 feet per minute. Our Domino, I think, was rated for 500. Yeah, it, actually, it might go higher. Our presses kind of limit what we can do based on our materials and stuff. But yeah, our Cytex was a water based thing. So we had to be on certain types of paper. Otherwise, it would just rub off. It wouldn't dry. We had right. the red dryers on that one. We had ultraviolet on the Domino. Awesome. Yeah. So. So I found your article in the, the November 90 uh, Rainbow Magazine. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. thank you for highlighting that. Stevador, um, reading the description, it sounds like sounds like uh, a Tetris uh, type game. It was. Right? It was. Yeah. yeah. And actually, page. if oh, you yeah, decided. Yeah. Uh, it's on page 10 for those of you at home. Let's see. So. There we go. Yeah. And you were how old when you submitted this? Uh sixteen or seventeen. I can't. I can't remember the year when I finished it. But um, essentially, there's one kind of. I, I hadn't played Tetris very much, so I only had seen it to know how it worked. Um, there was a one piece that was kind of the uh, like zigzag shape, and when I do the flipping it becomes the second piece. Like they should have had a second one going zigzag this way and the other. And I didn't realize as I was programming it that I didn't take that into account. So the listing only takes up one page, three columns. Yeah. So it wouldn't take typing. too long to type it in. Or just OCR it in. Yeah. So how did you feel when that thing came out? I, I was I was just enthusiastic. enthusiastic. I wish they had paid better, but I was just right <laughs> to, to have had something published and yeah, hey, yeah that was 16. kind of my feeling too i didn't you know the pay wasn't yeah. the greatest same here yeah 
Now, uh, last question on the newsletter. So this next issue, like you said, you want to kind of ramp up the speed here to kind of catch the issues up. What is the deadline for people getting you stuff for this next newsletter? You know, if some if anyone wants to submit something in two weeks, I think would be good for me to then start laying it out. Uh, I, I'll take any submission because I can push it into the following issue. But um, I know that um, Grant is going to need, uh, when, you, when you have the news to have available on the venue and stuff, we'll make sure that that gets put in. Um, and I'm thinking we're here in late July. Um, Jim Brain had said that for um, the elections for next year, we're going to have to have those nominees put in place. Um, and that will probably go on not this next issue, but the following, depending on the schedule. I just have to make sure that we have enough time for people to see that. And how do people submit articles to you? Like should it be email um, or they can, yeah, Discord or what? Would be great. You can reach me on the Coco Discord is Grant B. Uh, I think I might have changed my name to Blado with Grant B in parentheses. Um, or newsletter at glensideccc.com. And and do you do 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 you have certain submission guidelines as to what formats these should be in? Like should they be in? You no, know, I can PDF take or anything. yeah, I can yeah. take almost anything because being in prepress, I transfer files all the time. Uh, Word file, just straight text files, um, photos. If I have any trouble, I'll just reach out to you. But um, I guess Word would probably be the easiest for most people. But if it's a Google Doc, whatever you need. Are you gonna um, attempt to? Um give a different treatment to the name of uh, to the logo for the Glenside club. Um, well, I did. Have you thought about I it? Did, yeah, I did modify it a little bit. The, the name of the, um, of the newsletter, are you talking about the clubs itself the, or the newsletter? The logo, the logo. The logo. The yeah. Club logo. Well, so, so the masthead for the newsletter, I kind of have modified already, but I, I would like to kind of, I want to, pay homage to the history that's there yet um we're not going to change the name that's kind of a no. fixed thing yeah um but i i'm i'm working with an idea you know how the beginning of uh like warner brothers movies their logo has now kind of themed itself based on the genre where they're if they're like mystery and dark it'll have their logo in dark and kind of the theme music um i i wouldn't mind having it um adjust itself to match the theme of the of the issue. So. Okay, would be pretty interesting. I'll, I'll send stuff in WordStar. We'll see if you can read that or not. Oh, no, that one that one will be a little <laughs> bit trickier. But you know what? If you if if you give me something, I'll try. I'll try. Otherwise, I'll reach out for scream Te for help. Telewriter. Yeah, Telewriter. Oh, oh, yeah, VIP writer, Telewriter. Telewriter 64 file. <laughs> Window writer for OS9. Yeah. How about something from Deskmate? Coco 3 Deskmate. Yeah, oh, I was going to say, I still have WordStar myself. So, yeah, I could, could submit some stuff that way. <laughs> or could really go old school, DBase 3. All right, let's not try to make, let's not try to scare Grant away. Yeah, we don't, we don't have to. We don't have to, we'll make, have to make his life more difficult. Yeah. Can I send you a floppy in the mail? Yeah. <laughs> that one, I currently have no way of doing it. So, uh, David, you're going to have to help me out with that. I'll send you a cassette tape. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that. I can do that. Did you see that somebody has a uh, cards. Record, uh, software for a recording device that can record all of your computer onto a, you know, audio track of some kind? 
I'm not um, sure what you mean. Yeah, I'm not sure. Is it? I mean, because I've seen with just the cassette cable, you're you'd be able to record. So yeah. how are you suggesting? No, no, no. So, it was uh, an article recently. I I, I saw. I, I thought it was in our cocoa group, but maybe not. Hmm. Interesting. You know, it it sounds familiar. I I I was thinking it was sort of like a memory dump that it would take. Yeah. To allow you to I then think. restore your your settings, so or the maybe. whole state of the machine. So anyway, you, you basically right, want cool. for the next newsletter, you would like to get submissions within two weeks and yep. they can email them to you in a variety of formats. Um, right. Yeah. And, and we're, um, I mean, I, I haven't been as involved, but Grant has reached out to me to kind of help with some of the publication part of um, knowing the Cocoa Fest events and details. So you'll probably be hearing from me through him or through him from me. Okay. So. So that's we really 13th. get confused as to which one to call Grant. <laughs> <laughs> Initials Grant B, Grant L, just like yeah. Mark O and Mark B. I'm right. still confused with the marks here. So the Grants is just going to really fry my poor <laughs> pea-sized brain. Ah, uh, you Canadians. Or just your initials, GL or GB or, yeah. <laughs> M-O, M-C, M-B. Right. Well, if anyone has submissions or have thoughts for future, that's exactly what I'd like to to reach out. And otherwise, I'm going to be gathering. And um, for small things, I, I don't really attribute if I'm just kind of announcing in the same way that news is. But if there's something large that I really want to uh, include, I'm, I'm not going to go and just publish somebody else's work. So I'll certainly reach out to people. If, if you're submitting something on someone else's behalf, I'll want to make sure it's clear with them it's okay to be included. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on and kind of giving us an update on, on the newsletter, what kind of direction you're planning on taking it, uh, how to get submissions to you. The, the schedule is going to be like every two months, like you said, until you kind of get caught up. So that's something people needed to know, especially if they're submitting stuff, but the right. schedule will be bumped up for a little bit. So that's, that's good to know. So two thanks for coming. We'll August have to have you on 13. for a full interview at some point to go through your, your massive rainbow publishing career. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so thanks. I'll I'll stick around for a little while longer, but thanks. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And then uh, do we want to get it right into the game on challenge results? And then we'll have a break after that, Mark. Does that sound good to you? Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and run uh, at least uh, commercial one. And then you we'll do that right now? Okay. Into, yeah. You are watching Coco Talk, the world's leading weekly video podcast featuring a candy-colored computer. We spread the love to the past, present, and future for all models, including the original color computer, the Coco 3, and the world-renowned exclusive French computer, Radio Shack. Coco Talk would like to thank the patrons who sponsor our program, so our heartfelt gratitude goes out to Alan Huffman, Alan Murphy, Blair Ledoux, Boat and Aaron, Brendan Donahue, Brian Weasler, Brian Walsh, Karen Anscombe, D. Bruce Moore, Daddy Burrito, Daniel Williams, Diego, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Vebge, Grant B., Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Jason Downs, Jay Style, Ken Reichert, Malfunct, Melly, Michael Pitsley, Mike Rayburn, OG Hugo, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Paul Thayer, Retro Tech Time, Rick Eulen, Rob Inman, Rocky Hill, Stephen Wagner, 
Steve Batson, Steve Rasmussen, Terry Steen, Terry Steggy, The Backyard Shed Gang, Tim Thayer, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom Heron, Tom S., Tony C., and William Athing. Thank you ever so much, patrons. Welcome, everybody, to this week's Coco Talk Game On Challenge of the Week, where we played Xenian, or Xenian, however you want to pronounce it. We had a total of 21 players. There was Exile in Paradise with 5,100, Henry with 13,100, Chris B, 19,600, 8 Bits in the Basement, 20,200. Timbotech, 24,450. AJ, 24,950. Mark B, 25,400. Mr. Dave, 6309, 28,858. Sabhead, 31,358. Paul Shoemaker, 36,308. Ed Rhodes, 41,450. Jim Rye, 52,408. Shenley, 59,588. David Craker, 64,200. Tasman, 65,120. Canadian Retro Things, 73,646. Sloopy Malibu, 87,846. L. Curtis Boyle, 160,778. Nick Morentes, 222,244. Damn. Buck Owens, 301,454. And the number one score this week is... Brazia 1972 with 904,550. Thanks, everybody that played. We will see you next week. More than tripled the second place score. Right. Wow. Yes, there is definitely a clear winner this week. <laughs> <laughs> and part of that's the patience of playing it, because once you kind of like memorize the maps a bit, and, and get good enough at it, you can pretty well play forever. I mean, Nick and I both hit that. We, we both stopped our games without continuing because it was starting to get a little boring. <laughs> well, Nick's high score, he actually did live on the air. So, and he did actually play right to the end of his game there. Oh, okay. Because mine, I actually cut off. <laughs> but I was playing on the slower versions. Once I kicked it up, like during the live stream where I was playing the native six or nine top speed one, that's a lot harder for me. Now, I know Verizon actually is able to get into hundreds of thousands yeah. even playing at that speed so he's still far far better than i am but mm-hmm. i had my best game using the uh the the full speed one actually i guess ken for those who, who did not take part in it uh, maybe you should explain what we're talking about with these different speed versions. okay well um there was actually a number of different versions of the game there was the original game which uh suffers from a lot of slowdown and is not a very fast game still fun to play but uh, I believe it was in 2019, Curtis. 
Yeah, November 2019, end of November, I think is when yeah. they released it. Um, Curtis optimized it. So he released three optimized versions, a 6809 optimized version, a full 6309 optimized version, and then they dialed back 6309 optimized version. Yeah, and that, that last one was due to complaints that people said I sped it up too much. <laughs> it was too hard. So I think, I, ironically enough, when I first released it, Bryza himself was one of the ones, if I remember correctly, that said that the full 609 optimized version was too fast. Could I dial it back a bit? Because the 609 <laughs> enhanced, he said, was better, but it was a little too slow still. So I did the one in the middle, and now that he's gotten used to it all, now he's playing it on the full throttle one, and he has no problems at all. So part of it's just you know practice and skill. Well, I just found that I don't have the uh, reaction time anymore, the uh, reflexes to play it on the full speed. But, you know, I pretty much sucked at all of them, so. Yeah. Well, I like on the live stream there, I played the full speed version for most of it. And I think the highest I got was 81,000. And that was a fair bit higher than my second place score. That was more of a fluke. <laughs> my highest score I got was on the dial back 6309 version. So for those of you on the panel that actually participated and, and maybe tried some of the different versions, what was your go-to speed that you felt most comfortable game playing the game with? Uh, myself, personally, I would have to say the 609 enhanced or the 609 partially enhanced were, were my mainstays. How about you, Ken? Uh, definitely the 6309 partially enhanced was uh, the best. And, I mean, the game still did suffer from some slowdown, but it uh, wasn't as bad. Um, I personally thought that was just a feature to give you a little break to be able to take a sip of coffee while you're playing or something. Yeah, and basically because of the way his engine works, it has, like, layers that you can put stuff on, like even the Texas stuff's a layer. It's just like the way Nick has done stuff like Gunstar. And um, the more larger stuff you've got on a layer to add, the slower it gets. Because it's basically, it, it draws the background every time. Then it draws the first layer over top. And then draws the second layer of whatever's on top of that, you know, type of thing. I mean, you get stuff like the force field that goes across the entire screen and is animated. Or if you have like a mothership or worse yet, two motherships on the screen at once, it really starts to bog it down. And uh, I basically did the copying stuff, you know, copying these different layers over is what I sped up, which helps, but it's not consistent. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just proportionally faster. And anybody else on the panel try it uh, this week? Uh, Grant, I think you said you, you forgot to submit one, but you would. Yeah, I only tried the 6809 enhanced uh, version. Okay. And I was, uh, frankly, there are looking at the performance that you're getting and how much is all moving. I, it's hard to hard pressed to see the games of the era of our computer that could have done that. That's really amazing and a testament to the people who are optimizing as well as designing these games today. It's really amazing. Yeah. Well, I like, you know, talking to Nick, I mean, he's, he's mentioned like, I don't think uh, the author, Michael, they're going to knew how to do like FIRQ based background sound. Cause it does slow down a little bit with sound, which is why he did so many quick sound effects. But the uh, the layering engine he did, I mean, that was something Nick didn't do back then. That was ahead of what Nick was doing. Right. Now, Nick's done it since, and he's learned a lot of other programming techniques to speed it up, which is why Gunstar is like a full screen game doing that kind of thing. And he's got multi layer, you know, backgrounds and stuff in the asteroid field. So, but yeah, That's, it was for the time. It was pretty pretty good. Yeah, for the time, and definitely since he didn't know a lot of the tricks and stuff that uh, there was lots of discussion about in Discord. So this one. Uh, garnered lots of technical um, discussions. So, yeah. And plus it's one of the few games Nick's actually good at. That's not one of his own. So that was good. Yeah. <laughs> he actually came out and played. So 
I, I had to double check that his uh, original submission wasn't photoshopped. Yeah, but we saw him live, so. <laughs> yep. But um, the one thing, of course, that uh, people that played it may have noticed is that there was a glitch in the scoring where all of a sudden it would start throwing some symbols in there rather than numbers. So Yeah, and actually for anybody who's played the original version, did that happen? Because Tim Linder was thinking that maybe my patches caused I that. I think it did happen once or twice, just not as often. I did uh, play the slower version at the end of the live uh, stream last night. And I think at least on one of the, one or two of the games that I played, it popped up, but not as bad, I guess. Okay. So it might be like, like I only changed the, the copying the layers routine, which should have mm-hmm. nothing to do with score. But maybe it's a shared routine, or maybe it's catching it, you know, mid-frame because I changed the timing of the frame so that it's happening a bit more often, or something, and it's kind of glitching. I don't know. It's almost Basically, like the the, um, uh, the tiles for the numbers got are getting overridden with some with another tile. Yeah, or the pointer to where to grab the data to put there is grabbing a regular tile instead of a text character tile. And I think it's right. it's it's actually what it's doing is it's shifting the numbers over because. Um, if you don't have any glitching in the score, your score always ends in zero because there's nothing that should give you a single point. But anytime uh, you get a glitch, you get a number like at eight? the end that's not a zero, an eight or a six, Four. I think, are the ones that uh, turned out. So Okay, that's interesting, though. You said you tried it on the, the stock version and you actually did see it happening there just not as often. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it could be the fact that you know, somebody removed the copy protection and screwed it up. That's happened before. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I want to mention before you get into the details and showing the live stream here, Ken, or you can bring it up while I'm talking. Um, there is, if you take a look at the original die comments, because this was sold twice. Once it was sold through Diecom in 87, 88 range. And that ad actually mentions there was a Coco 1 and 2 version with, for 64K that would run in cassette or disc. The Coco 3 version required disk drive. And none of us that I know of have ever seen the cassette version. And I don't remember seeing it at Rainbow Fest when Dave Dyes was selling it. I only remember the Coca-3 version. So I don't know if that was like he had ads for certain things where they would you know, give the system requirements for both sets of Cocos if it worked on both. And I'm wondering if that was just a screw up on the ad layout. But the manual actually mentions that, too. Yeah, if you look at the manual, but the, in the manual, it actually says that the Coca-1-2 version is on cassette only and the Coca-3 version is on disc only. Yeah, which contradicts the the ad. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was released in 87, 88. And Brian Palmer, Bryce, I had mentioned during the stream, he actually was in contact with the author, Michael Duncan, uh, not too long ago, I think three years ago. And um, there was a pretty big falling out between him and Dave Dyes, so I'm assuming probably in, in not getting paid or something like that. Uh, you know, Michael being from Australia, the, the author is from Australia. But I do know that by the time that game came out from Diacom, Diacom was having, as we've found in our interview with Glenn Dahlgren, the big fiasco with Rainbow, where Rainbow was charging him two to three times as much for the exact same ads that Sundog was getting because he was Canadian and Lonnie was definitely, you know, favoring, you know, Native American type uh, developers and stuff there. And, that, and I know Dave got so mad about that. He pulled out of the cocoa market really abruptly. Like he just cut, never showed up at a fest, never advertised again. Um, I'm wondering if Michael might've got caught in the crossfire of that. And that's what happened. Um, so I Bryce is going to try to get a hold of him and see if either Nick or myself can get a hold of him and maybe we'll have him on for an interview to talk about you know, the development of the game, et cetera, but also what happened. And I'm still trying to get a hold of Dave Dyes himself too. Uh, Henry Reitfeld actually, I guess, uh, knew him growing up a little bit and actually he's still in contact with him. 
and also his sister, Lori, who actually did some of the artwork for the manuals and the artwork for some of the games, too. So I'm hoping maybe we can get the full perspective of what happened here all the way around and maybe get a group panel because, you know, there's a little bit of controversy with the way Rainbow did advertise. And I heard some of that even back in the day that he definitely had a favorite list that got better rates than, you know, just somebody new to the thing. Like if you're friends, the with friends and family rate. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that'd be an interesting bit of history to try to get, you know, track down and then put onto an interview that we can actually put up for everybody to preserve for the future type thing. I don't want to make it like a super controversy thing, but it's, it's the way the business worked back then. I've heard that in other uh, retro computer circles too, that that was a definite thing for ab magazine advertisers and stuff at the time. So, mm -hmm. Well, talking about magazines, um, thanks to Buck Owens, there was, uh, I was able to find one uh, high score submission in rainbow And right here, so there was, uh, this was the January 1990 rainbow. And uh, so two scores were submitted. High score of 429,530. So I don't know. The, the game came out in 89, so it hadn't been around all that long. So maybe uh, it's a completely feasible score. Obviously, we yeah. well beat that, or one person well beat that this time. But uh, yeah, and then yeah, um, if I'm right on the timelines, I'd have to go check the ads. But I don't think it was on sale that long before Dicom pulled on the market. So you had a limited window to get the game, mm -hmm. and then it ended up being, as we've seen the manuals in the archive, that he ended up selling it himself. I think through a company called Remcoms in Australia in 1993, I believe it was, and that was a Coco Three only. At that yeah. Point too. So uh, anybody that played it, what are uh, some tips and tricks? Obviously, uh, from what people were saying, there is definitely some, um, uh, there's patterns that you can uh, follow. Yeah, I mean, mem like most of these types of games, memorize the maps because uh, they're, they're static. Um, yeah. So if you have force fields, you know you have to go shoot a certain thing to disable the force fields. You can kind of predict, you know, ahead of time. Okay, the force field is going to show up on the right. Now I have to go shoot that thing. So you can kind of like guide your ship so you're ready to do it as soon as it pops on the screen. And I think my my uh, internet connection is way too crappy to uh, show the uh, the video here of the live stream. So yeah, it's, it's a slideshow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the only other one I have. Oh, good. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say being out of the cabin is a great place to be, but uh, the internet's not that good. Yeah. And the satellite internet's a bit expensive. The, the biggest tip I have, aside from you know, like memorizing the maps, et cetera, is that if you've got shots coming down at you or aliens are coming down at you or even the tanks, um, if you're up on the screen vertically somewhat and then you go diagonal, like if you're trying to time like the mothership or trying to time the tanks, and some of the other aliens coming after you, if you go down, you can go at the same speed, which gives you more time to dodge the bullets. So if you're going diagonally, you say upper left to lower right, and there's a bullet coming down a little bit to the right of you, you can actually keep ahead of it uh, somewhat. And if you're actually got the ships, I think you go at the exact same speed. So basically they won't hit you if you're safe already. So you can actually take care of some of the aliens and, and the tanks in particular, where you can actually get more time to get in to shoot them between shots. Whereas if you just go straight left and right, you have less time to react. So you tend to get killed more. 
Oh, unfortunately, I tried shutting a few things down, and it's still a slideshow. So, I mean, you can pause the uh, screen there, just kind of show what the you know various people were playing, and also what, you know stage okay. they were at at the time. Um, try that. So um, here you can see uh, we actually have Nick Morentes in the bottom corner there. Uh, yeah, the left side seems to be the real hardware fan club there right yeah <laughs> so i'm at the top there in the top uh, corner with my real hardware um timbo tech in the bottom corner there is also using real hardware so we're we're uh 50 50 split there real hardware and emulators yeah because nick was uh using hardware but you can see sloopy and jim are playing on the uh Slightly different, uh, the composite palette. So everything now, is. I have a, I have a question green. on that. Was that did like it, and I know the game asks you, do you have an RGB monitor at the very beginning? So obviously it lets you pick between the two. Was this picking the wrong one? It just happened to be pretty decent colors for the game, or is did he actually have a complete different color set for composite? I have absolutely no idea. Actually, I because I, I never tried that. In fact, I've never seen these these colors before the live stream. So I've never seen those colors on a cocoa before. So. I mean, that's an actually nice green. Yeah, I mean, I, this is a four-color game, first of all. Like, most Coco 3 games were 16 colors. This is one of the ones that was actually yeah. just four. Uh, black, white, green, and blue is the default. But that one had, kind of adds a green and an orange-red. I don't know what you know, yeah. want to call that one. But it actually looks pretty decent. I was surprised. Because usually, if you pick the wrong one, you get weird pinks and all kinds of crap. The Puyan palettes. Now, yeah. now the dif difference between Sloopy and Jim is uh, Sloopy's using uh, the original palette composite and jim's using the uh, updated palette so the the sloopy's a little redder and jim's a little oranger i think it looks yeah sloopy's was a little softer um mm -hmm. i tried those different different settings so i recognize them so uh, that's just the difference between the two is you tell the game you're using rgb but vcc you tell it you're using composite and then you have your two choices of uh palettes it's okay, yeah, because Jim Rye just mentioned in the chat that he entered yes for the RGB prompt, so the colors are set to be for an RGB monitor, but then he picked composite in the the emulator VCC. itself. Yeah. yeah. So that's not the colors that would show up in composite if you played it on composite the way it was designed. That's a just kind of a fluke that it actually has decent colors picking the wrong one. <laughs> it's, it's better to be lucky eyes. than good. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, it's a really good game. I mean, it's basically a, a Xevious, but I'd say it goes farther than Xevious. You have these different planets you're traveling between, like when you first start the game. And I'll show this when we get to the gaming news, because I'll actually show up the new page I hacked out literally at the start of the game on challenge. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because you can really see his uh, love of sci-fi in this because there's some very recognizable bad guys in it. Yeah, and there's a lot of them. Like I was going through the uh, the Australian version of the manual, which, by the way, if you're going to download the manual, get the Australian version because it has a lot more information in it than the DICOM one does. The uh, the, the the aliens that are coming down towards you, so it's not including ground-based things like radar stations and force fields and tanks and that kind of stuff. There's 27 different designs of aliens coming down. You've got little happy face things. You've got stuff from Star Wars, from Star Trek. Um, but name, what, what are some of the other ones? I, I remember scrubbing bubbles. <laughs> yeah. Any Cylons from Battlestar Galactica? I, I didn't play the game, so I don't know if they had them or not. Yes, actually, right at the very beginning, those are Cylon ships. Thought so. <laughs> yeah, there's there's quite a few 
different ones in there and a lot of variety. I mean, the, even the, even the, 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 the four color landscapes you're going between the planets, cause you get this little part where you're flying the stars between planets. Then you see the planet kind of come in scrolling on. And then, you know, some of them will have cities and, you know, you know, basically kind of like the first level of gun star type thing. And then later on you get cratered moons and then you'll get some stuff that looks like ice stuff. And there's a lot of variety. I mean, for the four color palette in particular, and each planet is a diff- little bit different. They kind of have their own designs as to what kind of is on them. And they're different sizes too, which if you look on the map at the beginning of the game, where it actually kind of shows you the four orbits, I think it's the biggest planet first, and then it gets to smaller ones as you go. And that's actually reflected as you're flying over the train. And basically there is a finish to the, not the game itself, but if you sweep through the entire system, you actually get a splash screen saying that you've completed it. But now we're going to have to have you go through it again, but this time, with more aliens coming at you. And I know Buck Owens and I think Bryce had both mentioned that when you get to the third round, it really starts to pick up. I, I didn't play long enough to get that far. I only got to the second, but it's a nice looking game. I'll have to check it out. <clears throat> it is actually for the time. Definitely. It is a very yeah. impressive game. Yeah. I think the most impressive thing, and I think the reason that, well, there's two reasons I think he picked the four color palette. One, it was a Coco one, two version, which you probably would have done four color artifacting. Uh, but two, most of the games that had this big of maps and, and scrolling and everything else usually required more than 128K. So you'd need a 512K upgrade to Coco 3 at the time. And stuff like Gunstar is a perfect example of Contras and a bunch of others. This one actually ran perfectly fine at 128K. So if you had just had a stock Coco 3 straight from Radio Shack, as long as you had a disk drive you're ready, and joysticks, you're ready to go. Yeah, so definitely a game that uh, I would have been very happy to have back in the day. Um, yeah. Oh, one other tip. Use the smartphones. Yes. And, and I know a lot of people were having problems saying that the smart bombs didn't work, but I, I did put into the Discord there and stuff that the smart bombs only work if you're not firing your guns. Yeah, so, so you, you have, have to let go of the joystick button, then slap a space bar, yeah. and then go back to firing. And as uh, I think uh, uh, Bryza had said, um, if it could be remapped to the second button on the joystick, it would make the game much actually easier. much easier. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't know if there's enough room. Like the patches I did had fit in place because I don't have source code, obviously, and mm-hmm. I really don't feel like disassembling the whole darn thing. Um, oh, come on, Curtis. That's like a no, I've done it once for you. Nitrous 9 itself, and that, that's enough. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and Fractals, I did that too. Well, if we can get the author on, maybe we can get him to add that. We'll start feature creeping. Or even if he just has a source code. I mean, if it's a, if the source code's available and I just have to reassemble it, though, then I can go patch that pretty easily. It's just trying to figure out what all this coding was doing. Okay. Well, um, yeah, so it was a successful uh, um, live game last night. Uh, we had lots of people playing and a very successful week of submitting scores. We're once again at 21 players this week, so... Out of curiosity, what was the most people you had playing the game on the live stream? Because I was so busy playing the game, I couldn't pay attention to the stream. I think it was seven we had at one point. But that was only for, like, just a little bit. And then I Still, think that's Mark, pretty good. That's one of the higher We had though, seven, and then I think Mark blew up his uh, VCC. And then uh, <laughs> by the time he got it going again, um, we uh, only had six again. Yeah, it was a pretty good turnout for live. I mean, and it's because a good apparently game, so <laughs> there's something in it that if you hit reset, like if you soft reset it while you're um, uh-huh. um, 
while you're uh, playing. Actually, I, I uh, did it on my uh, real hardware, and the screen turns red, and it's got oh no written in the center, and then the computer crashes. I don't know what he uh, did for that, but if, if he did oh no, then he probably did that on purpose. Yeah. Why don't VCC you. would explode? Yeah, and, and it, actually... it, it shut down Mark's VCC, but I tried it on the um, uh, I tried it on my real hardware and. It went red, went to Ono, and then just a bunch of garbage on the screen. I had to reset it back into basic to start up again. So hmm. I wonder if that was completely on by design or if he has some sort of check to see if it looks like it's pirated or something, and then he does that as a it could be. I don't know. Or just know just to prevent people from being able to get into the source code somehow or something. I don't know. Yeah, because some of the copy protection, like a few of them used to self-destruct the discs themselves. Like Sam Sleuth is rather famous for doing that. If you if it detected that it was on a pirate thing, we would trash the director track and fill it with buy your own all the way up down through the thing, and then the game would work more. <laughs> you could think less, less, less insidious reasons, like you set up the game and hit reset to start it. Well, no, you can't just hit reset again. You've got to start over and set up the game before you hit reset to start it, you know, in software, so to speak. So if the reset vector is screwed up, then what are you going to do if you hit it again and you haven't gone through initialization? Yeah, but would you have put an oh no on the screen? <laughs> that well, sounds like more that, purposeful. Yeah, you, you got into the reset vector in ill-gotten way and uh, the game's not prepared to reset at this point. So we're crashing now. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Plus, if he had self-modifying code or something, which I didn't look that extensively, but if he does... If you hit reset and try to restart the game with the code as it currently stands, it might not be in a usable state anyway. So that might have been mm -hmm. that too. That's a good good point. I never thought of it. Anyway, so um, I think uh, a lot of people had a lot of fun playing it. A few people thought there was only a couple people that thought it was too easy. So that's a bonus. Yeah, Bryza, Nick. <laughs> Bryza, Nick, and Buck. Yeah. And actually, Buck said that he doesn't even like this, these kind of games, but he still submitted three or four different scores. So, yeah, well, I know Bryce had mentioned specifically that he said if if it gets too easy on the like the the slower ones, like the six or enhance or six or and partially enhance, he said it does get challenging again once you kick it into full six or none. Obviously, if you can get just about a million score, it's still not that challenging for him. But. And I'm sure you uh, do have it in the news, Curtis. But this uh, game was also featured on a certain drunk retro channel yeah i do have that feature in the game on this. so we'll 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 talk more about that in the game on news <laughs> <laughs> and and the insults to me that were made in the uh video <laughs> as uh tim couldn't remember my name <laughs> and there's somebody claiming to be nick Morenti's in the uh, chat here on youtube says where do i find the zoom id it looks like he wants to join the call but uh, i mean he's on every week so what what happened to the zoom id for him i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> anyway if somebody wants to message that to him quick where's this at where's he at uh you can probably get him on uh discord would be the easiest there okay here we go All right. Well, I guess uh, that is all about the uh, game, unless um, maybe we can talk quickly to Nick about what he thought when he gets on. If, But uh, for now, I will show what next week's game is going to be.
So this game is a bit of a mashup. Oh, which one is this now? Um, shoot. It's either the Aardvark one or it's Nurbal Force. It's the Aardvark one. Okay, so that's a Dave Edson Defender clone. Oh, what the heck is the Defender name? Defender style game, yeah. Planet Raiders. The right? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm about to lose my <laughs> reputation. <laughs> and we will be playing it on hard this week. Now, this, three, you, three you picked another one I don't think I have in my site yet, right? Yes, it's on your site. Oh, good. I'm looking at it right now. Color I had to really computer. scramble to get Xenion on there during the show yesterday. So. Well, I, I did. I, I did ask you about that at the beginning that it wasn't on your site, and you're saying, but I don't know. I think because well, we I've got another 600 games to go yet that I know of. So yeah, there's lots. Well, I, we, I think we miscommunicated because it sounded like you said, "Well, I did the optimization for it, so that's why I didn't put it up or something like that," or or you haven't been able to get a hold of the author, so you didn't put it up or. Anyway, yeah, I think I at the time I did the optimizations, I was planning on doing it the night because I was doing a bunch of optimizations once. I was also doing color car action and gantlet, and I even did an attempt at gantlet too, which I might have to upload because I did try playing it. It was a much lower level of optimization because it was already pretty optimized and it didn't seem to make that much of a difference. It looked very slightly smoother, but very, very slightly. But then somebody pointed out that where gantlet 2 lags the worst is when you get a screen full of ghosts or something like that. And I didn't play it long enough when I was testing it to say, is it going to help when the screen gets overwhelmed with like 50 creatures? So I'll have to try that again. And if it actually does smooth that out, I might, might upload that version. Cause it was, I was a bit disappointed when I did that one. It, it didn't look like it fixed much. And it's also frame locked. Yeah. Two is one of my favorite games back in the day, but I, I, I did find that it was kind of ran kind of slow, especially when there were a lot of sprites on the screen at once. Um, yeah. And because it's frame locked, I mean, that's more reprogramming than I, probably really willing to do <laughs> trying to figure out where all that stuff's kept and how it decides when to upgrade the frames etc but so if it smooths out the uh the busy screens then maybe i will submit it again i will steer it a little bit back to the uh game for next week oh right planet raider right Go ahead. <laughs> a couple things about planet raider is uh it's for the coco one two or three you only need 16k of ram and a joystick as i said we're playing on hard there's three levels easy hard and impossible so and you play tested hard's a pretty nice I play tested impossible is really hard so hard is not that hard but impossible there's a huge jump between hard and impossible so I think we'll go with hard it might be a little easier easy for some of the people but you know we got to think about the people that are just trying this game out for the first time and not scare them off <laughs> Yeah, well, if we did impossible, then like all the scores would be like in single digits, right? <laughs> <laughs> Except for Buck Owens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, this was published in 1982, and it is actually, as it looked in the picture, Defender, but it's also got Choplifter um, bits to it too, because rather than the aliens stealing the people, you have to pick them up to finish the level. So you have to go through, shoot all the bad guys, and pick up the uh, people off the ground. Okay, and so it's you, a bit more like Protectors 2 that way. Yeah, but you don't have to um, actually kill all the bad guys. You just have to save all the people or kill the people if you don't want as many points. <laughs> you can just shoot them, depending on what kind of mood you're in. 
And Nick Moretti's, I see a couple of people have get sent you some uh, direct messages, et cetera, for getting into the Zoom call. So if you can make it on here. And we're trying to drag this segment out as long as we can so you can join before it ends. Yep. Because <laughs> it's not very often that we have Nick Morantes as the top three scores. Except for his own games. I don't think that's ever happened. Does he even do that in his own games? Yeah. No, he played <laughs> tests his game games enough that he could literally kill everybody else in the score there. Yeah, he cheats. Yeah, that's, that's more likely. He's just got the codes for cheating. So yeah, that's a that's a good one. So a Dave Edson, it's also one of the earlier Defender clones in the Coco. Um, yeah, because eighty two would have been uh, Protectors two is out in eighty two, I guess. But I'm trying to remember like the Tom Mix one Protectors. Uh, I think that was eighty three. Starfire would have been late eighty two, early eighty three. I think late eighty two. Um, what's the Tandy one that's kind of loosely based on Defender by Greg Zumwalt? Um, oh yeah. Um, Starblaze? Yes. Starblaze, that, yeah. That was, that was later. That was definitely 83. Kind of a mix between Defender and Starmaster from the Atari. Yeah. Planet Invasion by Spectral was 83, I'm pretty sure. Um, Nerval Force, which was by Softlaw slash, what was your game division called? <laughs> Color Quest or whatever. I think that was 83 as well. So that's definitely an earlier one. And Davidson, I mean, at that time, he was a teenager in high school and he'd cranked out like eight or nine games in the span of like a year and a half. And just so you know, also once you uh, save all the people on the level, the way to end the level is you have to fly out the top of the screen. Okay. So it's kind of like Gorgon on the app where you had to go up there to dodge satellites and stuff. Okay, Nick, are you coming on or not? (laughs) He probably can't figure out how to work Zoom. <laughs> could be. Let me see if he's supposed to be Discord. I don't normally check Discord because it's too distracting while the show's on. But yeah, he's not showing up as online on Discord. You do a commercial break, maybe. Yeah, I would do a commercial break. Yeah, we can do that. Give him some time here. He did. He did send me a message apparently about twenty minutes ago saying, "What's the meeting ID for Coco Talk? My Zoom has lost it." I think it's more the operator there, Nick. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shot cast across the bow. <laughs> All right, here, here's a commercial. Hello, I'm David Ladd. Thank you for watching Coco Talk, the world's leading live Coco Talk show. ESP 8266-01 RS232 TTL Wi-Fi Network 4-pin DIN Fitbanger DB9 PC IP DriveWire 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 Hey, what's going on everybody? Original Gamer Stevie Stroh here with you. And in case you didn't know, I've actually got merchandise, right? So I've got now two DVDs. This was my first DVD I released last year for the 25th anniversary Last Chicago Cocoa Fest. This features 20 videos and three hours of color computer game videos. This is my second DVD. This is a brand new one for the 2017 um, Last Chicago Cocoa Fest. And this one features 13 brand new color computer gameplay videos that you won't see anywhere else. Robocop. Robocop. Gotcha, sucker. This is not bad. Not bad at all. Yes, I did it. Oh, freaking right. Look at that. 
I made it past Yellow Belt. Very cool. Oh crap, I am getting the crap freaking bombed the hell out of me here. Okay, that the square guy looks kind of like a puckering sphincter. Alright, there we go, game over. Oh, that is <laughs> That's what she said. Okay, so I've got to jump over the spikes and under the ball. So, if you like my videos and you want to help support a starving artist, you can head on over to 8bit256.com and grab yourself a copy of one or both of these DVDs because they're both awesome. And if you like color computer gameplay videos, you might like these DVDs. So check them out. Thanks for watching my videos, everybody. In a world where RGB produces black and white video, one cable can make a difference. Switcheroo. Google3scartcable.com. Fletcher, I don't need that report tomorrow. Great, JT. I need it tonight. But, JT. Fletcher saved $300 on her office away from the office. Radio Shack's revolutionary Model 100 computer. It's a word processor, phone directory, and dialer. It even communicates with the office computer. Fletcher, how's that report? Fletcher. Radio Shack's Model 100. Save $300 and put it to work. You'll go far, Fletcher. <laughs> You'll go far. I have known what he was saying. Hey, we're back. <laughs> but by the way, Nick is here, and I just want to let Nick know that Curtis was bad-mouthing Nick on the show, so <laughs> let him have it, Nick. Uh, Tattletale. Uh, yeah. Nothing's changed. <laughs> I, snitches sorry, get snitches, Greg. Or can you restart the show? Because I missed the start. You didn't miss anything too important. The only reason I was bad-mouthing Nick, besides his obvious problems trying to use Zoom, is that he beat my score this week, so I had to do something. Well, yeah, because, so what, it's because he cheated. Scores? Don't forget that. He cheated. Isn't there, well, is there any other way? <laughs> <laughs> See? Told you. <laughs> Now, Nick, you're one of the people that actually found Xenion. We'll just kind of finish up the Xenion discussion now that you're here. You're you're one of the few people that actually thought it was a little bit too easy. It was, yes. Yeah. Um, on real, oh well, I was playing on real hardware um, and using my Waco joystick as well, so it was really easy. I probably could have kept on going, but it just gets a bit monotonous after a while. Now, was that on which which of the four speed levels was that on? I like, chose your 6809 um, enhanced one. Okay, so you didn't try the two faster ones past that. So that no, might have made no, a difference I was going to, but I, yeah, I thought, yeah, the middle of the road setting might have been the best. And it, 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 it was good, uh, except every now and then it still slowed down a lot. Yeah. But it was bearable. It's a good game, though. You know, apart from that, I think I think it could have been a better game if you didn't have it having. Uh, it's so easy to get um, uh, extra ships and uh, re uh, recharge your fuel so easily. Because that that's what was happening. I'd get I'd get shot, but then I knew it was just a matter of time before I got another ship anyway. So you just keep keep gaining more ships and all that along the way. 
Yeah, I'm just saying to hear do your take maybe in a future episode of, of trying it on the even faster version to see if the speed difference makes it hard enough that it becomes a, a challenging game for you. It probably makes it a little bit harder, but because it'll be fast when there's only a few aliens up there, but then it'll slow down and it'll be probably just right. Yeah. I, I think the biggest flaw in it is that the speed consistency, because like, like you said, if the yeah, it's more the busy. consistency, I think, rather than the speed. But um, yeah. Oh, so who who no. got number uh, number one? I bet. Ken on the oh, on the score. Um, Bryzer, wasn't it? Bryzer, got the oh Bryzer. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Bryza just under a million. <laughs> yeah. He wanted to break a million, but he didn't quite make it. Yeah. Who was second? Buck Owens in? Buck Owens, and then you. Yeah, hey, I came third. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, now, do you have an opinion on this week's game, or did you see what it was? Uh, there was that scrambler type. Uh, I, I'd never played it before. I don't know what it's like. Oh, okay. So it's a new one to you. Yeah. Oh, uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up with you. Um, you actually met the author of Xenion, Xenion, how are we going to pronounce it, um, once back in the, the day, didn't you? Yeah, he came over. He came over one um, Saturday afternoon uh, back in 88, I think it was. I didn't know who he was, but he, he came over with um, a friend, uh, the, the fellow who wrote Croyd. He just ducked over one day. He he lived in, on the Gold Coast, which is about an hour away from me normally, and he must have came to, to Brisbane, my, my town, to meet that, that um, Croyd guy Andrew who Simpson. I knew. Yeah, yeah that's it, um, Simpson, yeah. And uh, they just came over for the afternoon for about an hour. So I hadn't, I don't know if I'd seen his, his game even back then, Xenion. I think I'd heard about it. So I didn't really know exactly who he was. That was pretty well the first time I'd heard about him. But um, uh, I, I do remember he said he was uh, moving over to the IBM PC at that time. So he was only short-lived. Although I suspect he um, programmed uh, a bit more earlier before that because according to Bryzer, he, um, he had a dragon. Which um, oh. was a bit a bit more rare back in Australia back then. You know, most people who had a cocoa type machine had a cocoa. Dragons weren't as common. They were available, but most people, you know, if you wanted a a cocoa type machine, you bought a cocoa because there was radio shacks everywhere. But uh, yeah, apparently he had a dragon, so he must have programmed the game originally on a dragon for for a cocoa one and two. And according to Bryzer, who spoke, uh, who emailed with him uh, more often, um, when he went to go to the US market by, via DICOM, DICOM said, look, can you get us a Coco 3 version? So I think he just basically converted his Coco 1 and 2 game across to the Coco 3 uh, and made, you know, chose the Coco 3 mode and all that. Hence why the game only uses four colors and you can actually see that it was actually done on a smaller screen and it was just stretched by, by putting some padding graphics on the right-hand side just to go to the full-width full Coco 3 screen. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I don't know what the rest of the politics uh, came after that as to why he uh, it then disappeared from uh, DICOM as well. Would have been good to have found the original Coco One and Two version. Though. Yeah, yeah. I actually put a plea for that out on the on the page. That yeah, I yeah. I saw that. So, I, I'm suspecting. We talked about it earlier, Nick. I don't know if you were listening at that point in time, but uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I speculate because that was one of the last new games Dicom brought out. Is that that might have been when the whole big stink with Rainbow and Lonnie happened that Glenn Dahlgren oh, yeah. talked about. And I think DICOM just you know, exited the Cocoa community in such a hurry after that because he was so ticked off that probably Michael never got paid because Bryce had mentioned that there was a bit of a bad blood between Dave and and, and Michael too and that he might have been just part of the fallout of the whole Rainbow Lonnie thing. Yeah. And by that time, he already decided to move over to the PC anyway. So he was gone. Shame because I think he did have some, some talent. Yeah. I think... Uh, the graphics routines he's got in um, in uh, in the game uh, show that he understood about multi-layering the graphics and all that, and he, he had a good sense of artwork too. I think his artwork was very good. For yeah, four like colors. he did some really good stuff for Four Colors. That was awesome. Yeah, Four Colors. He did a really good job. Really looks good. I'll see there. So, that, that's why we have to get a hold of him so we can get him back into the Coco community and get him making some more games. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Just mention how many Ferraris you have, Nick. I'm sure he'll start it right up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I bought I bought all the Ferraris. So <laughs> <laughs> Australia is now Ferrariless unless you go to Nick's house. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep, that's all I know about it. Cool. At some point, we'll have to cover Croyd too. Uh, Andrew Simpson's game is another another Australian generated game. I mean, we were, Nick and I were discussing this earlier in the week here. Like, basically, if you look at the Cocoa 3 market in particular, the States is obviously the, the biggest market. Canada, I would say, was second, but Australia was a pretty close third. And then after that, it was like a few scatterings in Europe and stuff. But yeah, for some reason, uh, Australia think, always had a really strong Cocoa market. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, user groups. I never used to go to any of them, but... <laughs> That's because you were too good for them, I think. So Yeah, I, I only <laughs> played my games. <laughs> or should I say I could only play by games <laughs> yeah, well you proved that wrong codes. yesterday gotta have those two <laughs> yeah. codes yeah that's right anyway thanks, thanks for popping on I'm, I'm glad we got some of your perspective the fact you actually met Finally the author yeah the fact you actually met the author is pretty cool so hopefully I know Bryce had mentioned that he'd uh, been in contact with Michael just three years ago so hopefully if we can get in contact with him again I'd love to have him on um, just as you know, an for interview an interview about, anyway, yeah, yeah, be good to hear the uh, the background story of it, of it all, yeah. And, and then I, Henry Reitfeld's trying to get me in contact with Dave, and we'll see. You know, Dave might still be pretty bitter about the whole thing, so I don't know if he'll want to do it or not. But uh, I'd love to have him and his sister on to talk about them you know, because she was did some of the graphics for the manuals and the games themselves, as I mentioned earlier, yeah. And plus, I you know, maybe have those two kind of reconcile somewhat because I think I'm pretty certain that the timeline was that that all that hit at once. So it just, you know, it was kind of just bad luck. Yeah. I think that era, though, 88, 89, was a pretty active era for the Coco 3 for software development, if I recall. 
It was a lot. Yeah, I mean, Sundog Candy was still bringing out some pretty cool new stuff. Um, yeah, the tail end of the Dicom era. Um, Go sub with uh, Jeremy Spiller before he started selling it through Sundog and he brought yeah, Crystal yeah, City was, and Xenix. Yeah. And yeah, there's some pretty pretty cool stuff going on. And I'm not even Probably. mentioning OS nine yet. So yeah. oh, OS what? <laughs> <laughs> Stuff yeah. that those Canadians only use, nothing here, nobody in the it's States. It's so easy. <laughs> <laughs> Just read the 1,100-page manual. It's it's no problem at all. Did you write that manual? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I ran away from it as soon as I saw how big it was. <laughs> yeah. I use it to weigh down papers on the back of a flatbed truck when I'm driving on the highway. So. <laughs> <laughs> I used it for toilet paper. No, no. <laughs> No, that's the Commodore manual you're thinking of. <laughs> I probably was actually, um, I was probably one of the first people or one of the first people to actually own or have bought OS9 in Australia, um, ironically enough, because um, around uh, 86, 87, it was when Tandy decided to sell my, my Donut Dilemma game. When OS9 became available in the US, I actually had a call from Tandy, the guy that um, that I was dealing with in the Tandy offices who were buying my software. And he said, he said, look, OS9 has just come into the warehouse. Uh, would you like to get it? Because, you know, we, we recommend you can develop software for it. So I I ordered it and I, um, and, and that was, I was thinking that from here on, I'll be doing OS9 games. But yeah, I didn't get very far. <laughs> I didn't get far in it at all. <laughs> I still got the manual, so I didn't. I didn't burn it. But <laughs> well, we're working on a new version of the manual anyway. For next yeah, time. I know, there's a yeah. lot of stuff added and changed and whatever else. So it was a really, it was a good manual, though it was overwhelming. I, I, I didn't learn parts of it till several years later myself. It was a programmer's manual. It wasn't really a. Yeah, it was it was a bit more user everyone. friendly than some other programmers' manuals I saw for the rival systems at the time. But yeah, it was it was just overwhelming. I mean, when you have this tome that's like this thick, yeah, it's it's a bit intimidating. And who who it's a reads manuals anyway? Yeah. All right, we ready for uh, news? Yeah, you can do the news segment thing, and I'll just go straight to game on news, and I'll go straight into regular news after that. All right. Uh, let's see. I was going to do it this way. From around the world, what you need to know. Get caught up on news with El Cardinal. Muppet News Flash. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Screen, turn the sound on because I forget. <laughs> So, so MMA is asking, what was the best OS9 game? Oy, oy, oy. Um, I, think, I guess it depends <laughs> what genre you like. Um, like, for example, like, the Sierra uh, games, um, King's Quest 3 and Legion of Larry, and of course we've had all the other ones added on since. Um, yeah, those were Coronas pretty Rifts. Coronas Rifts. Yep, Coronas Rifts pretty- was the one. Yeah, that was the one I played. Um, I never did get Fractalus back in the day, but that would have been a good one too. Yeah, Coronas was a bit more involved. I had more more thinking to do. If you're into simulators, Flight Sim 2 and, and um, Sub-Battle Simulator both were popular with people that like that genre. It's a bit too complicated for me. 
Yeah, I don't know if uh, Tandy um, had the fractalus in the stores back then. They did, they did here. Mm. Actually, they did fract- there, fractals yeah. came up before Coronas did. Yeah, but over here, I never saw – I saw the Coronas. Um, but I Sounds never like you're talking fractals. about the virus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> the Coronas and the fractals, yeah. I would say yeah. Rescue and fract- Fractalus was my favorite. Um yeah. Another popular one that I really liked, and it's an education game, is Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? That was a fun one. Yeah, that one had a big manual. Yeah, I never got into that one, but I probably should have. But yeah. Actually, it didn't have a big manual. It just had that, uh, what is no, it called? It had the, the uh, Almanac, which you could look at clues if you yeah. didn't know it, but you didn't need of that. Of course, I, I well, thought you had, to, you had to read that. Because <laughs> it's, it's the, the Almanac of 87 is the definitive. Yeah, I mean, countries facts. have changed now, so it's it's a bit harder to figure it out, yeah. I mean, there's some third-party ones, too, like um, Alan Huffmanetta's Space Invaders 1, which is part of EOU. Uh, kind of guy got ported to it, uh, which actually has some features that the original disc or disc basic version does not have. Like, you can start on any level. Um, if you're running a native mode, it runs faster. Dexter's on there. Shang has been ported. Uh, Shanghai Base Go 9 by Sean Driscoll is actually a pretty decent one. It's actually got a few features that the uh, official Activision one doesn't have. Like, you're uncovering a picture. And if you get all the tiles off, you have to get to see the resulting pictures. So you have a bit of a reward besides the you know, fire-breathing dragon thing, so it's a bit different. <laughs> There's a few. Um, Floyd Wrestler has done a ton of ones in Base Canine. We've got a few on there already. Magic Stones and Gem Quest. Space Zap by him will be on the next version of EOU. I still got to fix up Dungeon Depths and Tank Rescue. Um, tank Rescue runs way too darn fast <laughs> with Nitrous 9, so I have to slow it down. What was that breakout style game? Uh, Smash, was it? or Smash, yeah. Yeah, Smash and Bonk are the two I can think of. Yeah, Smash was, I think it's Smash I'm thinking of. That that one was really good. I like that one. Yeah, and that one you can even design your own levels. Yeah, yeah. And Sokoban, right. you can design your own levels too. There's even some level one ones like uh, Cave Walker, which is a kind of the sequel to Downland, Biosphere, if you're into that kind of you know sim life type thing. Um, yeah, there, there was a few. It was like a Pac OS 9 game that you could pop up in multi-view all other things where you're waiting for other things to happen. It was pretty fun. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. That one's on EOU too. Yeah. There, there's a few, I mean, there's, there's dozens. I haven't gotten most of them on EOU yet. Cause I have to you know, finish testing them and stuff. Uh, Cause a few things got broke over the years uh, with some changes to the underlying code. So I have to patch it a little bit like cave Walker right now. Uh, it has some speed issues. Don't even uh, get me started on cave Walker. <laughs> yeah we research it. it's talking it's cheating is part of the problem it's talking directly to pias and stuff naughty naughty not supposed to do that but uh well we'll figure it out eventually here we'll get that up and running again the desktop publisher was the best home publisher newspaper <laughs> 09 is not home bad publisher. Home, publisher, home publisher was like a a shot in the sky that uh didn't quite have enough thrust to get up into the atmosphere type thing right, right. yeah it, yeah, it, was it, it was designed well. It looks good from a screenshot, as Nick has mentioned before. But the speed, and I, it's the speed's actually fixable. Um, but it would require more than 128K, and, and Tandy pretty well stipulated that it has to run on 128K at the time. So they kind of mm-hmm. weren't able to do anything. The only other way we could have done is if it you know, directly mapped in the screen. Like if it ran off one of the green BDG screens, you could have had it a lot, lot faster, but... I would very much like to steal from Home Publisher as a HTML renderer. They're doing all the right things. Yeah, but it definitely needs some speeding up. 
<laughs> yeah, if we did it at modern speed, it would be a, a good head start on what I'm trying to accomplish. Or you just figure out how to get into that. You know? Yeah. The thing is, I did have it partially disassembled because I had to patch it to run under Nitrous 9 because they made their own software interrupt calls or replace system calls with their own. And unfortunately, that was on the hard drive of my TC9 that crashed. So that's code I completely lost. Is there anyone in the Cocoa world that can't say I lost something important in a hard drive that crashed? <laughs> Especially in the OS9 world. I think a lot of us did that. Yeah, I might have done it two or three times. <laughs> I've only done it once. And I keep backups of everything. Like I have multiple copies of Nitrous 9 of various versions. So on the PC, backed up on SD cards and... I think I even got a few older ones burnt onto DVDs and stuff. So I had a couple of crashes like back in the early 2000s, but haven't had any for a long time now. Mainly, I guess, because I've switched to SDC. Yeah. Well, I've had problems on the SDC because SD cards do wear out after so many writes. And I'm writing, like when developing Nitrous oh. 9 EOU, I do a lot of writes of assembling Good stuff. Good to know. Stuff, so. <laughs> High endurance SD cards. Even they eventually will screw up. The one in yes, the main eventually. One in, yeah. So this is a backup. <coughs> yeah, three and a half inch discs. Yeah. A couple of days, yeah, and 720k discs. So some of the software I did recover was from an old work backup done on those same style of discs. We backed up our work drive. We had an 80 meg drive and a 40 meg drive, and we backed up the whole thing on three and a half. And yeah, the, I have a bunch of those myself, yeah. The, the backup had a few corrupted disks in it too, but we were using Bruce Isaac Stream, which actually is smart enough to try to resync if you have missed disks. So it, it will still recover the files that it can, which was a godsend because it recovered some stuff that I, I thought was permanently lost. Are we but, supposed to be doing the news? This oh, is yeah, news. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that news thing. That's an asparagus call, I think. <laughs> All right, for first one, well, Ken kind of uh, hinted at this. So Tim and AJ, and Tim actually joined us on the live stream yesterday. Uh, AJ was going to, but then got a little bit busy, so she couldn't, though she did pop up in the chat for a bit. But they uh, played Xenion as their sibling rivalry, and actually they both liked playing the game so much, they ended up doing an extended episode longer than they normally do. Normally they're around 15, 20 minutes. This was 40 to go through it. You know, with the standard, you know, ridiculing and stuff of each other. Um, I'll mute this a little bit here, but uh, one thing I will mention is that AJ learned how to trash talk during this episode, and it seemed to be working on Tim because his scores got a little bit worse after that started. <laughs> also, I think hopefully this, because I got a better internet connection than Ken, hopefully this is not showing up too bad as far as showing the actual gameplay in action. And I think he's using the 6809 enhanced version here, I believe. Anyway, you can catch the whole thing and, and watch AJ learning to trash talk Tim, which is, is amazing, I have to say. Next up, Jim Gary uh, ported a game of bingo, you know, the standard bingo game with bingo cards, etc. Now, he's got a blog spot onto this one because as you'll notice on the credits here on this third last line on the screen, it mentions the original version by Larry Bethram, which was done on... Dartmouth style basic was written in January of 1966. This is going to be one of the oldest basic ports I have ever seen on any platform. Cause I mean, basic was barely around for a couple of years at this point. 
Um, and I'd never even heard of it, so I didn't know this one existed here. So I'll play a little bit of it. You've got basically competing bingo cards, and you're it's not doing blackout style bingo, it's basically doing the line-based bingo. But for you know, porting a, a, a game that's literally older than I am, um, you know, to the MC10, that's 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 retro at a whole new level. The MC10, you know, was 20 years after this. Almost. I even tries to simulate, you know, the the what do you call the bingo caller for some carnival barker or something? I don't know. You know, repeats the thing a couple of times. And now you don't actually do anything here. Caller. Caller. Okay. You don't actually do anything here. You just watch it basically map the stuff to the two cards, your randomly generated cards type thing, and then tells you who wins. So it's not really a quote unquote game, <laughs> but it's more like a bingo simulation. But because it's such an old thing, he actually did a, a blog post entry here. I'm talking about porting it over. And he actually had to change some bugs in the original code. Um, at least as he found it published type thing from January 66. So kind of a bit of a history there and about, about it's converging it over. So that's kind of interesting in and of itself. And the fact that it's retro of retro, you're taking a 1983 retro computer and taking a game that's 17 years older than that, that was done on minis and mainframes and moving it over to there on one of the very earliest versions of basic ever made. I just found that awesome. The next thing uh, Jim Gary did is he uh, did an update to Jim Medic's draw poker. And this is another one where he had to fix some bugs in the original code. I won't play the video because we've showed it on the previous show here, but basically his bug addendums here, which has been a growing list of things is fixed here. So eight and nine is what he added on this latest version. If you want to go grab it. Um, part of it was some stuff that he fixed just, you know, on his own type thing. And then others, the, uh, mentions that, you know, Menick did not reinitialize the variable store in your hand. So he's actually fixing some bugs in the original code. So he has a kind of an explanation there, but you can download the updated source. You can also check the updated video uh, showing the gameplay with the new version. Now this here is Amiga fun and I'm kind of glad muted, but this is the, uh, the Amigos. So that's uh, Brent and Aaron. It looks like some of the other team speaker regulars and some of the other members of their local Taze Valley uh Retro Computer Club are actually showing up there. I know Brent's going to be showing up as well, too. And this is a fundraiser they've done now. This is the fifth year, I believe. And they raise money for the Children's uh, Hospital uh, Miracle Network. And uh, they actually just received a little, uh, I don't know what you call it, a badge or a coin or something like that that was commemorating the fact they've raised over $20,000 over the last five years. And they've actually been bumping up their goal this year. Originally, because they, you know, quite a few people were, you know, out of work and stuff. So a lot of people are a bit more financially strapped than normal. So they only set a goal of $3,000. Now, we'll mention Frank at Retro Rewind said that as soon as they hit $1,000 of donations, he'll match that through Retro Rewind. And he did that already. So he gave a $1,000 donation. So awesome. You know, kudos to Frank for that. But uh, they set it for $3,000. They already almost passed that before the show started. And then they passed that early in the morning. So they bumped it up to 4,000 the last time I checked. And uh, so basically, if you go to the uh, URL, uh, URL bit.ly slash Amigathon 2022, you can do the donations there. Uh, you can watch the live stream on Twitch. I'm doing a little thing here. Uh, but it's going on for 12 hours. It started at 9 a.m. Eastern, I believe. So it's going to 9 p.m. Eastern uh, tonight. And you can just donate some money through, I think it's PayPal or something, or even through credit card, et cetera. And they're just basically playing games, talking about the games and stuff. And then just, it's just kind of a fun way to raise money. And uh, as I said, it's been quite successful. 
and it all goes to kids in, in you know, need of care in hospitals, et cetera. So a uh, great cause too. So I donated last year. I'm, I'll probably donate a little bit later today. I won't be able to donate too much because I'm still kind of getting my business recovered in COVID too, but uh, I'll throw in a few bucks. Anyway, uh, if you're into retro gaming, feel free to take part in the chat, et cetera, too. There's a few people here on the panel that are actually members of the Discord. And uh, now there, Edvin just uh, donated $25. So, And they've passed the $4,000 mark. So second goal reached. Hey, this is what we're talking about earlier. I finally got off my button, made this entry game on the web page, which I was scrambling to do. I was going to try to get done before the game on Challenge Live, but uh, there was enough screenshots I took here that I uh, took longer, so that's why I was late getting onto it. I think I took an extra half an hour. Um, so we were talking earlier about the solar system you have to go through here. So if you look in the upper right corner, uh, it's a little probably a little small, especially if you're watching on a phone or something, but you can see the little... Tainos planetary system, which has the four planets you go through, and you actually see the planets, you scroll over, and then you have, you're out in space for a while, and then you're back over a planetary surface, and you kind of progress through it as you go through, and then you plan, I was mentioning about the different terrains, you see some of the like, cityscapes, you can see some of the cratered moons, there's like water areas, um, you know, different pipe type things, here's a bit of crater mixed with rivers, um, People are playing with the mothership here. You can see on the lower left corner that there's uh, two motherships at once in some parts of the game, which makes it a bit more challenging. And then the lower right, if you've completed the uh, complete run of four planets, you get the congratulations of reaching the end of the alien system. Prepare now as I send you back, you know, to fight the evil forces again type thing, and it gets even harder. And I know Buck and Bryza both mentioned that the uh, third round, it really starts to get difficult. There's quite a few more aliens, et cetera. But it's a pretty good... Uh, Pretty good game. And if you go onto my webpage here, you can also get this on the Color Computer Archive, though I believe Guim has separated the 609 versions into one download. 609 version is a separate download. <clears throat> if you want to get all four to try all four, I have one zip file here on my set that actually has all four in one shot. So you just don't do it the one download. Now, if you don't have a 609, that's kind of pointless. You might as well just go get the uh, 6809 dual versions on the uh, archive itself. So that was me starting to catch up. Uh, next up, Coco Forest, which we covered last week. He's been doing these new videos of playing Dragon games on real hardware. And he's actually got the original cassettes for all of these. So we get to see some of the artwork up close. Um, I won't play too much of the gameplay unless you guys have a request. If it's a game you haven't seen before, let me know and I'll, I'll play a little bit of a clip of it. But uh, this one here, it contains Rommel 3D, which was originally a Mictron game from the States that got sold on the Dragon as well. It's basically Battlezone. And then 3D Sidab Attack, which is baddies spelt backwards. Um, that one is actually one that was original for the dragon and it's kind of a flying through a cityscape basically and you're launching missiles and trying to shoot down the aliens and you have to turn corners and stuff and it actually has a pretty cool 3d effect where it almost looks like buildings at night you can see like lit up windows and stuff you're driving through so um any request to see any of the gameplay on either of these two or on to the next batch of games he's doing yeah okay that's a was that a nah or a yeah it was a nah okay Next, we did are Draconian and Fury. These are both originally uh, USA games. Draconian from Tom Mix, of course. Fury by Computer Shack slash Mictron. One of the earlier ones, kind of a, basically a Bosconian clone with enhancements and a time pilot with unenhancements. This is missing some stuff. Um, so we covered those two, too. And once again, this here is the, actually the artwork you got with Fury if you bought in the States because Mictron slash Computer Shack was one of the few companies that actually did full color 
printed artwork for their games on the Coco. Next one here is uh, Demon Seed and Mud Pies. Both of these are Mictron slash Computer Shack. Um, once again, the uh, the Demon Seed for sure was the artwork they used on the Coco version. I can't remember what the Mud Pies on the Coco that it was like cartoony like this, or it actually had one of their you know models type thing. But of course, they renamed the main guy to Cuthbert because that's what dragon people do. So your main antagonist there, protagonist, I should Next up is Intergalactic Force and Laser Run. Intergalactic Force was originally from Antico in the States, and it was actually sold on cartridge. It was one of the few third-party games on cartridge that was not coming through Radio Shack. And it's the trench scene from Star Wars, basically, in 3D. And Laser Run's a uniquely dragon one. And that one, I don't remember exactly what that looks like, to be honest. So that's Intergalactic Force. And this is the uh, laser run from the dragon, which I don't think I've seen this one before. Down the corridor and shoot down as Oh, yeah, no, I have. It's a basic one instead of machine language. So I know Rainbow had published one of these similar ones too in one of their 1982 issues. They made a kind of a 3D trench war, a 3D advanced trench warfare, I think it was called. <clears throat> so this was one that did page flipping to do the animation of the trench. And it actually worked pretty good in basic. I mean, both versions that I've they've seen, this one and the one that Rainbow did actually, you know, for basic game look pretty, pretty decent. Intergalactic Force is a bit more smooth playing because it's actually a machine language game. You Though must fly through the waves of TIE fighters and shoot them while dodging their deadly accurate laser. Oh, yeah, bombs. that's that's pretty smooth. Yeah, and you basically shoot the ships. You have to not get hit by those bars coming across. And then occasionally there's a hole in the floor you have to drop a bomb in. And then you get some bonus points. My one problem with that game is that it's too easy and it's too simple. I mean, it's it's cool for the first little while, but it gets kind of dull fast. Actually, any of these here, because there's nothing else to do. That's all you do. You've, you've seen the whole game. Next up, we have Cuthbert in the Jungle and Crash, both Tom Mix games. Cuthbert in the Jungle, of course, is originally called Trap Ball by Ken Kalish. And of course, because it's Dragon, they had to rename him to Cuthbert. Um, I won't bother playing those. Crash, I don't think we've covered that one on the uh, gameplay thing yet. Uh, that one's a bit strange. It's 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 a binary file you load, but it plays a little bit slow. And from what I can tell, it's actually calling the get put routines in basic to do the animation, though it does have some four voice music and stuff. So there's some machine language, true machine language in there. But I don't know if that was a game that he just made a lot of ROM calls uh, or if he actually had done it and compiled it in basic. So it's, you know, through one of the basic compilers available at the time, and then just added the four voice machine as a subroutine in it. So it's a four screen game. It's a platformer. Um, I don't know if it's a clone of anything. I don't recall seeing an arcade game that kind of does the same thing, but you have to like throw ropes and then climb across and dodge things and pick up treasures and stuff. So if you're into platformers, then uh, you'll probably like that one. And the last one I've got here is uh, a game page on YouTube called Retro Mantra. And this one here is showing Donkey Kong clones and lookalikes. So basically, these are games that are not officially licensed. Um, there's uh, some arcade ones that are kind of loosely based in Donkey Kong. The one they showed here was Kangaroo. Kangaroo, to me, has enough original elements. It's not exactly a clone. Um, it's got some unique stuff itself. Uh, but some of the other ones they cover for other machines here, 
I include two Coco ones. So they got Donkey Monkey by Teletronics and they got Monkey Kong by Screenplay. Um, so let's fast forward. So Donkey Monkey, unfortunately, they actually have it running for a pirated copy because it's not copyright 1983. It's not by Jay White and it's not by White Bear. It's by Harvey Broffman. It was sold through Teletronics and it was actually 1982. So it's a hacked version, which I have seen before. Um, I've actually got the original discs from Harvey that he wrote this game on. I've actually got some source code and builds of the game before it was finished because he sent me all of his old Cocoa discs a while that he had that still worked. And I've actually put the source code to Donkey Monkey up on my website and on the Color Computer Archives. If you want to see how a game in 1982 was written, you can actually load it up and take a look at it, modify it, we do whatever you want. Unfortunately, it also has the uh, colors reversed here too, but I've, I, I don't know if most of you have seen Donkey Monkey, I presume. So I don't know if we need to show any gameplay footage of this. I don't think we've covered this one in the uh, game challenge, have we, Ken? I don't recall it. I don't think so. Because this one is one of the ones that's a looser clone. It's only got two screens. And the uh, the rivet screen is standard rivet screen, basically, with the only direct differences being that you've got a fire extinguisher you jump up to get instead of a hammer, which actually makes more sense. And the fact that you can change direction in the air mid-jump, which is pretty cool. But the uh, the second screen is a hybrid of the uh, elevator screen and then the main original starting screen, which is called, I'm blanking on it, the, uh, the one with the angle girders you're going, girder screen, I guess. But you actually combine the two into one screen. So you actually have an elevator on the left, and then you get onto the girders on the right, dodging barrels. So it's kind of a hybrid of the two. That was pretty cool. Um, it's definitely not as good as Donkey King graphically or play-wise, but it's it's easier, it's simpler. I know one of the magazines that actually reviewed them head-to-head said that, you know, Donkey King, if you want the authentic arcade experience, that's definitely by far the best you could get in the Coco 1 and 2 at the time. But Donkey Monkey was easier for kids and also had some, you know, unique gameplay when they combine the two levels. So it, it kind of it has a soft spot in my heart, even though it's not like the best game. And it has a cool intro. If you guys haven't seen it before, I'm going to get mad at here, aren't I? Yeah, I'll, oh, never mind. But basically, instead of having the do-do-do-do uh, and then stomping on the girders thing, the uh, ape actually crawls up. Oh, boy. Uh, the, the ape actually crawls up the ladder and then plays a little riff on the piano to start the game, which is just odd and weird, but it was kind of fun. So that's it for the game on news uh, this week. So basically, if you want to check, they have a couple other ones here, too. Um, some of which are more different than others. Yeah, so he's got a like Crazy Kong on the Commodore 64, Chameleon in the Arcade, Aldo's Adventure for DOS, Beauty and the Beast of Intellivision, and Crazy Kong City for the ZX Spectrum. So you can actually see a few other alternative Donkey Kongs that are a little bit different than the arcade. They're not trying to exactly clone it. So that's the game on news. So let me switch over to regular news here. And for you dragon people in the audience, there's a bit of a surprise at the end that I don't know if you guys have seen it already, but uh, I was kind of surprised by it. So hopefully you'll, you'll enjoy it. Okay. okay so oh, we mentioned. God. That's, a, that, that's a scary face. <laughs> I haven't even got him talking yet. Um, so Jason Riker, we covered, I think was it last week or the week before we covered that he'd done his kind of uh, a little bit late, but he covered his first day of, of Cocoa Fest. And this is his coverage. It's another 14 minutes of video covering the second day. I won't play it. Go, go check it out. But um, 
he kind of covers some of the other people that he missed, some of the boots that he missed, some of the seminars he's got. Uh, he's got the national anthems that Brian Shivering plays through MIDI on the Coco at the beginning of the show, which we had three of this year. We had Canada and the United States and uh, what was the other one? Um, somewhere in South America, I think. It's, I can't remember which. You guys remember what the nationality was? It wasn't Brazil, was it? Might have been. Because we had a few... Uh, people from there well, at the show. Was it Argentina? Or? Make any sense? Or yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm blanking. My apologies because I I know that you know we had a couple of people that had come up from there to to attend the show, and I should have known their names, but I'm just blanking. Some stupid. Anyway, check it out. It's a pretty good little summary of the second day of the fest. Next up, Don Barber. Now this is kind of a fascinating thing. This is more for the hardcore geeks, of course. But he's actually published, and he's got a GitHub with all the source code for this, and a 6.9 assembly language of doing uh, bit keys, RSA implementation of bit keys, up to 2,048 bits. Um, and he actually has a little screenshot here of it running, and you can encrypt and decrypt and all kinds of stuff. And so people were asking, well, how fast does it run? Because he has it running variable sizes. Like, you can go down to, like, a 32-bit key. And he said, like, a 32-bit key takes about a, you know, under a minute to generate. If you're doing a full 2048 bit key on the Cocoa, it takes a month to generate. So you probably don't <laughs> want to use that live on the web page browser there, uh, Rick. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I kind of talked to him. I said, I was wondering if you tried implementing it in uh, 639 native mode, like just turn native mode on and, and see if it speeds up. And he's also got a lot of memory copies that are being done in there too. So I kind of suggested that. And he thought, well, that's too much work. I, I'm kind of done this project. I don't want to really do too much. If this source goes up there, anybody else wants to change it. I said, well, the... Uh, the native mode check is super easy. I mean, it's just basically a load mode one. You're done. That's all you got to do. So we actually did implement it. He said it runs about 8% faster right off the hop. And he hasn't done any of the memory transfers. There's some extended math. You could do the extra registers, et cetera. Like you could speed it up a fair bit. So I don't know if if, if getting it down to a 32-bit key, if, if like we were talking before, Rick, about having maybe some kind of local encryption for Cocoa-specific stuff. That right. wouldn't go up to like modern day standards would be enough to be, you know, well, by, a little bit secure. <laughs> by overdoing it to start, then you can always back off to a reasonable amount of CPU time and get Cocoa to Cocoa security. You'd have to figure out how to keep emulators out. But yeah, there's there's something here that would be really useful. Yeah. Like I said, if you did, like I took a look at the code. I saw little bits in here and there that I could even optimize in the six. I don't mind a little bit, to be honest. Um, there's a lot of code though, and there's a lot of math, and I math and I don't get along in my brain. So, um, <laughs> that's the, the, point. the James, the James Diffendaffers of the world would be able to handle this much better than I could, to be honest. Um, but it's it's a fascinating project, and the fact that somebody actually got it done because I remember we talked covered or talked about the C64 had something for doing uh, Bitcoin mining, and I know the 6809 or 609 could do better because they were saying it was going to take you know X million years to generate a, a Bitcoin or something like that. <laughs> I'm sure we could cut it down to a few hundred thousand. Yeah, exactly. So it's 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 an example of pushing the cocoa to try to do something modern, and it actually can do it. It's not going to be the quickest thing in the world. Now, of course, if you overdrive it in an emulator, like OVCC up to 533 megahertz, well, now you're talking, you could probably do a decent-sized bit key. Anyway, the source is available on his GitHub um, in the show notes, et cetera. It's also on the page here if you want to go check it Sounds out. Sounds like you can generate your keys on other systems and then just bring them over to the Coco. So that'll keep you from you know spending forever. Yeah, because I imagine decrypting is a lot faster than encrypting, I would presume, if you have the key already. I don't know. Uh, I, did, I didn't I think, a chance to run. So decrypting back, uh, it won't be a month. It'll be a week. 
<laughs> oh, well, there you go. So if it took a minute to encrypt a 32-bit key to decrypt, it might take like 15 seconds. And now he's got it 8% faster than that was 6098 mode. And like I said, there's TFM's galore you could put in there and stuff to, to speed it up. I thought the decrypting had a longer key than the encrypting. I, I haven't tried tried running it. I'm not a, I, you guys are more experts on this whole, you know, fancy internet stuff than I am. Now, having a key, we could probably get to a usable time using that key. So this is all a good way to go. It's it's actually what makes sense is because this has a high overhead would be to distribute symmetric keys that you wouldn't have to have so much encryption time and then distribute them using this. So you download a package, decrypt it with this, and then use your, you know, symmetric keys. So it'd be easier to do in real time. So the point being do it the hard way first and you can always do it easier and buy time. But if you've never done it the uh -huh. hard way, you won't be able to. Can I add something? To... Sure. Go ahead, James. Asparagus. Who? <laughs> Where I thought you usually like the tech talk. Yeah, we're the ones who caught Steve head to explode. Oh. We're moving on. We're moving on. Actually, I will add one thing because I forgot to mention the initial description here. This does not require Cocoa 3. This will actually run on a Cocoa 1 and 2 32K ramp. Um, so you can actually use this on lower end. And if you do a lower number of keys than or lower number of bit length for the keys, as we were mentioning before, you actually could use this on a Cook One and Two or a Dragon. So now this is rather interesting. Uh Fabian Rodriguez posted this, and it's a strange cartridge for the cocoa. And I do remember seeing pictures of this years ago. I think this was unique to Quebec. I don't even know if this was sold in France. It's a French type thing. But it's a bit odd because, A, it's really, really rare if it's officially a, a Radio Shack cartridge. But if you look on the manual there, most of the time, if it mentioned the TRS-80 stuff and, and the color computer in particular, it would actually have the little three-color RGB logo. This does not. So it looks almost like a Model 1-3 style thing, but it's obviously a cartridge because none of the other TRS-80s had cartridges like this. So I'm not sure exactly. Was this something unique that uh, Tandy or Intertan, probably in our case up in Canada, made specifically for the Quebec market? Like that's something that I don't think would have happened too often. Like Tandy really liked to bulk market stuff to as many stores as it could in different countries if it could. So they usually didn't try to do something this specialized. Um, but like I said, like uh, Fabian was asking about it too here in, in the general posts on Facebook. And I do remember somebody posted a picture of this like 10, 20 years ago. I remember seeing it. And we kind of speculated exactly what it was then too. So I'm not sure what the exact story is behind it. But it's a bit like people were asking about rare cartridges before. This would probably be one of the rarest if it is a real official sanctioned Tandy Radio Shack product. Anyway, there's a discussion going on about that. So if anybody else has any more information on it, uh, Feel free to go pop on there. So this is a bit of an update. Uh, Marco came on, and we mentioned the news last week. Uh, he's actually, he professionally manufactures these labels for all kinds of retro systems, like C64s and Spectrums and BBC Micros and other TRS-80s and all kinds of stuff. So basically, he's actually got the equipment to do the full bubble style labeling. And now he had, at the time when he came into the cocoa market, he didn't know that Carlos was already kind of doing that on his own, had been for a few years. He actually sold them at the fest and stuff. Um, 
covering the standard replacement badges for like the Coco, you know, one and two or Coco one, you know, the, the Ram size little thing in the uh, right hand side of the case. And then also the actual Radio Shack and Tandy versions of the labels for the Coco one, Coco two, Coco three, et cetera. So Marco doesn't want to really step on Carlos's toes, but he says, you know, cause he manufactures these so much and he's got all the special equipment for doing all this stuff. So he can do a lot of it in house. He doesn't have to like subcontract so he can do it cheaper is that he would do custom ones. And here he just kind of threw up some, you know, random examples. Here's we had eight meg Gimme X color computer three, but with the Canadian British spelling of color, for example. And then in any description is kind of a generic one. And then 16 meg beast color computer three type thing. So if you want a custom version of one of these logos that looks like the real thing, uh, he might be your man to do it and probably do it at a probably a cheaper cost than Carlos could do, because Carlos is basically trying to do the bulk style, from what I understand. Yeah, but too bad he spelled color wrong. Well, he spelled it right. It's just uh, you know, you know, one breakaway country there that kind of split <laughs> off. And decided, well, we got to be different. So you know, we're gonna we've been it. rebels since the beginning, don't you? Know? <laughs> That's why we're number one. <laughs> Next up, Ken, you want to talk about this, and I'll just kind of play in the background here. I'll mute it. Oh yeah, sure. So I got uh, well, I was at Coco Fest. I picked up from some guy. I can't remember who it was, but uh, some keyboard thing for the computer so i thought i'd throw it into my coco 3 and see how it worked yeah so but, this is a co <laughs> my connect computer connector connect what are you these days rick uh, computer connect okay computer, computer connect so. <laughs> you notice how he peeled the 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 film up to take it off yeah. If you've ever spilled soda in your keyboard, when you do that, it will flip the springs past you over your shoulders <laughs> or maybe hit you in the face. <laughs> so basically, what, what you peeled off, there was the original membrane-style electronics for the keyboard that has all the places where the registers that you've hit a key. And Rick's replacement board is an actual one with you know, real switches and an actual circuit board and a solid yep. connector instead of mylar. Just a nice, beautiful, clicky keyboard. If you if you want a really nice feeling, clicky keyboard for your Coco Three or Coco Two, and this yep. uses your actual original keys on your keyboard, like it, yeah, yeah, and the and the casing for it, like it's, it's, it's just not replacing, replacing the thing. board, yeah. So and no soldering required. So it, even Curtis could do it. <laughs> and there is a hidden feature on the Coco Three. You can crank it down three to six turns, so you can get easy clicky or kind of hard clicky if you aren't a great typist you might want it to be less sensitive so you, oh, okay. can, you can play with that yeah and of course you have this extra switch which i'll let ken describe okay well that uh actually uh switches it into a coco 2 mode because anybody that owns a coco 2 and a coco 3 knows the uh on the coco 3 the um arrow keys are in a little diamond shape on the side and in the coco 2 they're on opposite sides of the keyboard. And some of the games were designed for that. So as there's a Coco 2 keyboard right there. So if you flip that switch, it makes the Alt and Control keys on the Coco 3, the up and down arrows. Yeah, which, which on uh, certain games, that's pretty well a requirement. Yeah. <laughs> like for me, Sea Dragon is an example. I cannot play it on keyboard. And I play it way better on keyboard than I do in joystick. And always have, but on the Coco 3, I just can't because I can't do the two-handed thing crammed together. They're not going to need it. So this this is a beautiful uh, way to get that backwards compatibility without having to swap keyboards constantly. Now, Rick, you're talking about adding something so you can actually access that switch from when the keyboard's already installed in the Coco. Because right now you have to literally take the cover off 
flip the keyboard up, flip the switch, and then put it back. Yeah. No, there there is a little handle I haven't quite perfected yet, so you can stick it in, twist it, put the keyboard in, and then there's a little nub under the left front that you can just slide back and forth. Right now, it binds up excessively, so I'm still tweaking the the concept, but it's going to work. Yeah, so at that point, you don't need to take the cover off at all. Like you can well, and you can still together. just go through the slot with the screwdriver or a toothpick or whatever you got and flip the switch. It's oh, so it's accessible from the underside of the computer. Yeah, the yeah there's, there's, there's a fence right below it. Reach okay. inside where I want to be able to just reach under the front of it and flip. You know, so there's a gizmo coming to everyone. It's going to cost me 39 cents or whatever. Ooh. <laughs> well, I'll save you the shipping. I'll just I'll just pick it up the next fest. Yeah, well, as soon as I get them working properly. Right now, like I say, it works if you do it exactly right, and otherwise it binds up. So I need to do a little refining on my uh, 3D print thing. It's at an angle, so it's not as simple as just sliding. You have to sort of anyway. Yeah. And one so thing that, I do do actually have to say that I have to give props to uh, Tandy about I have taken apart many, many, many keyboards on many different systems. And Tandy is the first one that actually made their um, spring for the space bar a different color than the rest of the springs, <laughs> rather than just a different size. So if you accidentally do knock over all your springs, you don't have to sit there and measure each one to figure right. out which is the bigger one for the uh, space bar. I'm look looking identical. at you, Commodore. Right. They look identical. It's just one of them's a little harder to squish than the others. Yeah. Yep. Like the Apple has that on the reset key, for example. Probably to make it easier for their technicians at the store to repair them for people that bring them in. Um, <laughs> yeah. I will mention for those people who have had their Cocoa 3s like since they were sold, um, that membrane does wear out. I've got two Cocoa 3 keyboards here that have certain keys that are hit or miss, whether they're doing it because those little Mylar contacts gradually wear out and doesn't make the contact as register the key. So this this will fix those keyboards. Plus, it's actually switch-based, so it's just a much better mechanical system to begin with and will last pretty well forever, I would guess. I do have to say it feels so much nicer. Yeah. It's almost like getting an IBM 5150 keyboard in your Cocoa, basically, you know, with less keys to fiddle with. And you get the bonus of having to be able to switch the alt control to be up down for compatibility with older Cocoa 1 and 2 games. Type them for the win. Uh, I, I mainly wanted to just look like a Cocoa keyboard still, you know? Yeah. And the Cocoa keys, like on the Cocoa 3, actually aren't bad. Oh, they're they great. Just, they're they're kind of spongy because of the Mylar. It's it's no, not the keys yeah. problem or the springs problem. It's the Mylar part that's the problem. And they've got the great little force offset lever, so you can't smash the button by banging your fist on it. I mean, they, they really did a nice job. So keep it. <laughs> yeah. So the only the real fault that that thing had was that the Mylar does wear out because it's just cheap plastic, yeah. basically. As it does on all the systems that have that, yeah. which is was very common back then. So this way you get to, like, I know there's been replacement keyboards since 82, like when uh, various companies in the States, HGL and a bunch of others, Smart Data, started you know making replacement keyboards for the Chiclet keyboard. Um, but then once the Coco 2 later ones with the full travel keyboard like this, and then the uh, deluxe Coco ones that were sold as replacements in Radio Shack, and then the Coco 3 itself, they actually had a decently designed keyboard. Though the thing was the cheap Mylar they used, uh, and it was to keep costs down, let's be honest. 
what would you, you know, it, it's meant to last maybe 10, 15 years and then it starts to wear out and then you start having problems. And you can even figure out like certain people that type certain keys more often than others. That's the part that wears out. So you can kind of tell. <laughs> Usually it's arrow keys and <laughs> break. Look, I've got to say, I've got this hundreds of dollars DOS keyboard here and the finish is worn off the top of the keys. A lot of them are shiny, you know, the some of the things you're starting to see the structure underneath the surface and my 40 year old coco looks exactly like it was made i was just going to mention that like even my mac keyboard that i'm looking at right now like the e key the r key the a key the s key i can't even read like that stuff's completely rubbed off my return key and some of the shift keys have actually got indentations from where my fingers hit it like these things <laughs> aren't done as well my coco keyboard is 30 years older than that and it like you said it looks absolutely fine so yeah, it was a well-made keyboard except for the, the actual contact part of it. And the switch is hot doable here. You can switch it right in the middle of a game. And yeah, you don't here. reboot anything. You just flip the switch. And if you want to go back to yep. running something else, you just flip it right back again. So kudos, kudos to Rick on that. That's It's nice having a full switch system in there on the original Coke keyboard. And the original Coke keyboard, kudos to Tandy on that one because it's a well-made keyboard. And those things do not rub off like yeah, they do. Exactly. And they designed it in such a way this little trick works. So, and Mark Siegel can take credit for that. He actually mentioned he the, he got to decide how the new keys were put in. And so the Alt and Control are similar to the up and down enough that a very simple switch. Yeah, you just have to flip one bit on the PIA, right? Well, you just, yeah, you flip, uh, it's a single pole switch to go from row six to row three simple little thing and it works great and here's can of course just you know rubbing it in that he's, yeah. he's on yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there you, go. you just need a coco fest sign up in that chair beside you there to show up coco fest this way now i did want to ask you something ken this yep. is something i had not planned until just now you actually have a sponsor now yes do you want to explain how that happened Okay, well, um, actually, if you notice also at the same time, I have to give a shout out to 8 Pits in the Basement, also has the same sponsor as me. Um, we're both uh, sponsored now by uh, PCB Way. Hmm. So, uh, you know, run a little ad in the video. So, which uh, if anybody doesn't know, PCB Way is a, um, they make uh, custom uh, circuit, circuit boards parts. for people and they also do CNC and uh, 3D printing, and they can even assemble your circuit boards for you. So so if you want to be a hardware designer, but don't want to have to yeah. handle the whole hassle of manufacturing and shipping. And or even if you uh, look at some of the free online designs for uh, circuit boards, you can get them printed up really cheap here. They'll do it $5 with a like 24 to 48 hour turnaround. There's probably a few people in our community that might benefit from their services, perhaps. Absolutely. Source. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like, like they can, uh, maybe they can churn out some uh, gimme X's. <laughs> well, that that's a chip shortage problem. There, I think, is a big problem. That's that's nothing. PCB Way can help you with. <laughs> they couldn't get the chips either. Okay. Uh, yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, congratulations, Ken, on actually getting a, a sponsor. So that. Uh, well, thank you. I was quite excited about that. So that's how you can afford to live in the cabin all summer, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, next up, we have Alan Huffman, who's now started a new sub-series in his blogs here. This is going into Color Basic Ram Hooks. This is part one. So this one kind of explains how these work. And if you've read the uh, Unraveled series, there's quite a lot of descriptions there. Basically, the Ram Hooks were a, a way of designing basics so that it could be extensible. And Microsoft uses because you had Color Basic and you did get some basic functions and then you'd add extended basic, but it still has to be able to run Color Basic. So these RAM hooks are for certain things like outputting a character to whatever. So in Color Basic, for example, you do a print and you have the number sign and then or hashtag or whatever they call it these days. And then you'd have a path number. So zero is a screen. Uh, negative one was the cassette. Negative two is the printer. And then in extended basic, they added an option for three for the uh, deload command. And the disk basic added one to 15 for disk file buffers, et cetera. And they have a whole bunch of these things that you can hook into. So you can extend like a print command or an input command or various other things. So it goes into explanation here. And, you know, he's referencing the code basic unraveled. You can see some that were actually defined to just do an RTS. They didn't do anything because, you know, any extra features were not being added till the next ROM revision. And third parties took advantage of this too, like ADOS extended and, HTTP DOS, SDC DOS will use this kind of thing as well to kind of patch into basic so it becomes part of the basic language. So it goes into a pretty good technical detail explaining how it works. And some samples, you know, how different basics added certain things on if you added them on. And then here's a list of the RAM hooks that are available that uh, were designed into Microsoft Basics. You got like open command, which could be open device, disk file, cassette, whatever. Uh, device number validity check, which means depending on what level of basic you have, It'll return um, whether that's a legitimate one for that particular one, like color basic, like I mentioned before, only handles negative two to zero. Um, extended added in the negative three and then disk added in one to 15. And then uh, set parameters, console in, console out. Uh, input device number checks, close all files, close a single file. Uh, print input, break key check, which actually the original Cocos did not have. Oh, I should mention super extended basic Coco 3 also added some of these too. And then the, I won't read them all out here, but there's a whole bunch of things uh, that are that are handled there that you can extend on. And basically what you usually do is you grab whatever the original ROM did and you kind of save that address. Then you plug in your own place you want it to go to first to check your new stuff. And then if you go through your new stuff and go, oh, they wanted the original one, then you can just jump back to where that original address was. And you can keep layering this on with different ROM updates. So it was a, it was a nice design. They actually designed it to be extensible and uh, without breaking software. So... But anyway, that's the beginning of his series on this. And he's going to start going in future articles to explain you know, how to add your own commands to basic and how to basically add in new paths if you wanted to. Like maybe you want to add a drive wire specific path or something. You could do that kind of thing. And you overwrite uh, one of those um, to do your auto start. Yeah, they're, well, I think the, the auto reset. run your or vector, whatever that is. binary. Yeah. Um, well, I guess, yeah, you can do it directly through the reset vector or you can do it through the, uh, I can't remember what the hook's called, but yeah. Okay, next up we got, uh, this is a bit of a different one and I was hoping maybe Simon pop by for this one because it's uh, not too far from him, I don't believe. So MCH 2022 is a hacker festival for retro computers. And you can see they got this nice little light up of the little emoji thing. Um. So this was Mike on YouTube, Retro Computing with Mike's the name of the channel. And it's a hackers festival in the Netherlands and it features old computers I mentioned before. And it actually, he goes around showing some of the old computers kind of roughly in date order. Um, and the Coco 3 is actually one of the ones they mentioned. Now they don't do any big demos or anything. It's basically just explain what the machine is. 
But I thought I'd play uh, two little clips. I'll play a little bit of the Coco 3 when he kind of explains the Coco 3 very briefly. But I want to play this one little clip here because it kind of explains the, the ethos behind it. The fact that they build their own mini city to ha- handle this thing because there's 4,000 people showing up. And it's just out in a field somewhere. This isn't in a convention center or anything. They actually bring tents and all kinds of stuff. So it's, it's kind of an interesting take on doing a retro show I've never seen in, in North America before. So I'll play a little bit of the beginning here where he kind of explains this. But in general, imagine 4,000 resourceful nerds or hackers, as they are truly called, meeting in a field where they build a small city with both power, water, internet, sewer systems, shops, food stalls, stages, and even a small supermarket. Most of this is done a couple of weeks in advance by the volunteers, and then the attendees show up And most of them start by contributing, mostly by building their own villages, often containing shared facilities. The Finns brought a sauna for public use, and the Italians set up a small soup kitchen, serving free food. Of course, it was not soup, it was pasta. Italian pasta, of course, and lots of it. On festival, you go and hear your favorite band play their music. Not here. You go and hear really skilled hackers and other really smart people give lectures or workshops about their latest work, Or something else interesting. There's also music and drinking because of course there's lots of people who like each other get together. Of course they'll be partying. Villages are often created by groups of friends, hackerspaces, other festivals or events in the community or other organizations who share the same demographics. So to me, it was more of a happy coincidence than a surprise to see the Dutch Home Computer Museum at the camp. They had put up a satellite exhibition, which is so cool because I wanted to go there, but didn't really have the time during my current stay. Kinback One is by some named as the first personal computer ever. It was produced in only 50 copies, of which only around 14 exist today. This is a replica. It is built without any kind of microprocessor, since it was not yet invented when this machine was designed in 1970. It's a pure TTL-based computer with no display or keyboard. It was used for educational purposes only, and the switches and the lights on the front of the cabinet were its only method of input and output. Now, we've mentioned the, the Home Computer Museum and actually uh, shown some clips that they've taken from there, and it looks like a really cool place that I'd love to check out you know, next time I get to go to Europe type thing. Anyway, I'll fast forward a little bit to the, the Coco part. Right after the Alice part. Able to see it. Tandy Color Computer 3, announced in 1986, would be the last member of the well-known Tandy Color Computer trilogy. It was an 8-bit system, but could be expanded with up to 512 kilobytes of memory. I do plan to make a couple of videos about the Tandy Color Computer. I do not have them in my collection, but I have borrowed a few that I plan to use for that video. Anyway, so it just kind of goes around the table that the computer museum put up there as part of this hacker show. And going from stuff like, you know, 1970, which is before the 4004 came out, I think that analog computer they mentioned. Then they go through some other ones that are a bit more you know, recent. They're kind of going roughly chronological over there, but they got a few like the Lisa and the Osborne and et cetera. So it's a pretty interesting video. It looks like a really interesting show. I've never seen a retro computer show that actually just sets up in a field with tents and you bring your own sauna <laughs> type thing. I think that's just fascinating. Um, so, you know, that's on my bucket list now is to attend one of these suckers. That just looks like a fun time. Next up, and since we've got permission from Pedro to play his videos in their entirety, especially when they're only a minute 20 long, uh, this is his 64K static RAM board. Now, 
I'm trying to remember the details, but I believe Brendan Donahue's SAM doubler requires a static RAM or much faster dynamic RAM to run full double speed on a Coco 1 or 2. Like this is the equivalent of the 65497 poke in the Coco 3 RAM and ROM <laughs> speeds up. So I will let him describe this because he obviously knows way more about this kind of stuff than I do. To find these boards in the mail. Uh, what this is, is a static RAM board for the Coco 2, specifically 26-3134 model. I'm going to be testing this one on a Model A, uh, but it should work on the Model B as well. Um, when I get one of those, I'll test it. Uh, it's not too hard to use. You know, it should just plug into the memory port that's on there. As you can see, there's not much to it. There's a static RAM chip, a latch, and, you know, I'm only using one of the OR gates, so this quad OR gate chip there. Um, yeah. So let's plug it in real fast. Here's the Coco 2. I'm going to turn it on so you can see that there is no memory, so we'll get that orange screen. Turn it off. I'm going to plug this in and make sure it's in the right orientation. This is the Coco's that had the two chip upgrade option. I think that's in. Yeah. Let's turn it on. Green screen. Extended color basic. And let's check the RAM. There you go. And shortly what I'll do today, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, I'll put the design for this up on GitHub so that everyone can uh, can have it and copy it. Very happy. So that's a, that's a pretty cool project. I didn't even know he was doing that. Um, and like I said, I think that'll work with a SAM doubler. Yeah, static RAM um, splits the clock cycle when you access memory into a column address strobe and then a row address strobe. And he's capturing the address lines uh, or data, I should say, with the latch for for the probably the top address lines, and then using that combined with the next strobe to deliver the data. It's it's a pretty simple circuit. Yeah, and I mean, all the two meg upgrade boards or higher for the Coco use static RAMs now too from every one of the manufacturers that does them. So obviously that's the way to go. And you have not, you don't have this RAM refresh stuff you have to do like Dynamic RAM has. So that's why the Gimme X is able to get its 2.86 megahertz mode. I think that's how Brennan's SAM doubler also works because basically that whole cycle of having to take cycle away from the CPU to just refresh the RAM well, is gone, right? There, the, I actually did a lot of reading on this so that I could hook static RAM to the 6803 and it does a refresh with um, with the column address strobe, apparently. So you, if you wire it right, like in the case of the Apple II, um, you don't need a refresh cycle. It, it's automatically done with the access. The main thing is you have to access all the columns on a regular basis, or it will lose part of its memory. So, yeah, it's okay, because. Yeah, Karen's saying, yeah, you do. You can just latch eight bits on RAS ball. You don't have to bother for column; just pass the lines through. Yep. And then uh, Pedro himself has said that the RAS and CAS are ORed as a chip enable. Okay. Which I don't even understand what it means because I'm not. <laughs> I'll let you guys talk. Well, about it later. you could you could do the same circuit for any. Coco one or Coco two. Um, I'm guessing 
you could do it uh, with a board that plugs off the SAM and then just remove all the old RAM chips. Yeah. Well, I think that's what Brennan's upgrade does. And I know like uh, Ed Snyder's Gimme X actually specifically says to run the 2.86 megahertz mode, you cannot use dynamic RAMs. You have to use static RAMs. Right. Right. So. Hey, cool. Thanks for uh, releasing yeah, that here, Pedro. But that's the neat, yeah, the neat thing about that is you can run the poke six five four nine seven comma zero mode on a Cocoa one or two. Yep. And it actually runs at full double speed RAM and ROM. Yep. So you can speed up your own base or machine your language. Screen will, your stuff. screen will still go wacky. <laughs> well, but the SAM doubler does not, from what I understand. Uh it probably squeezes in extra cycles somewhere. Yeah, I might have that friend in technical details, but I think that was one of the selling points of it is that it, you get screen working just fine. No, you, you need the Coco VGA for it to work. Oh, okay. So that's how you got around. <clears throat> okay. You actually have one of those SAM doublers, Dave? Um, yes, I do. And uh, Ron Klein and I found one particular piece of hardware that does not like the device. What's that? Real floppy drive controllers. Cool. Your life's blood. <laughs> <laughs> does it does it mess and up Dave the clocks a little bit there? What was that? I said, does it mess up the the clocks a little bit for the close? No, I mean, I, no. When I say it doesn't work at all, I mean it doesn't work at all, even when you're at normal speed. Right. Oh, okay. Is that the halt line or so something? Um, but yeah, there's got to be some one of the lines that is messed up by it. But oh well, because the floppy is just going to stop you anytime it wants. So that might not be very good for you. <laughs> Does it work with the Coco SDC, uh, David, or any simulation? Yeah, the SDC it? works fine. Oh, so it's that's just, not as major of a problem because most people are no. It's SDC. just it's just real floppy drive controllers don't appear to work with it at all okay good good to know i did not know any of that so i, I don't have actually i have a sam double i do have a coco vj though well i didn't know it until ron contacted me and then i did my own testing which i'm like well crap the whole reason i got this thing was so i could do the high density controller stuff <laughs> of course you did david <laughs> well yeah i did the world has been saved. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up, Ald Alderson uh, Retrocomputing uh, did a brief video here comparing Coco 3 Extended Basic versus Raspberry. You know, I'll have to, hopefully, you guys know what this is Raspberry Pi Pico MM Basic, which is also a Microsoft Basic, just doing a simple Hello World program. I think just to roughly compare. I that the it, it you know the syntax between the two which is basically the same thing. Now I did notice when he was running he was he had some quirkiness I saw on the on the Pi version, so I'm not sure if it's exactly the same basic you know syntax that the Microsoft Basic on the Coco three uses. Um, I mean, it's just basically doing a hello world style thing, so he just does that, and then on the Pico it's kind of hard to see this little thing that he does the print hello. In this, and I'm not familiar with this Pico Basic. I don't know if any of you guys are. So I don't know what uh, what exactly this comparison is supposed to do, except that it's running print hello. 
Uh, next up here, Richard Kelly, just this morning, uh, put an update for his Easy Directory program, which we covered a few weeks back in the Cocoa Facebook group, and you can download it there. It's basically a program launcher, kind of a little bit similar in a simplified way to the SCC Explorer, except it's written completely in BASIC. And it will launch some machine language programs. It will launch BASIC programs. It's it's not perfect. And he said, this is probably about as far and as fast as you can take this in pure BASIC. After that, you have to do some ML subroutines, which is what the SCC Explorer does. Um, it's a bit of a simpler interface, and here's a bit of a screenshot. Um, so basically, you get those little you know, selection arrows to pick whichever program you want to run type of thing. Well, if you want to see, you know, it comes with obviously the source code and set the reports. So you can take a, a look at it if you want to. All right, this last one is uh, was a bit of a surprise to me. And uh, hopefully for the Dragon people that are still in the chat, like Kieran, uh, hopefully they have not seen it. They'll be surprised them too because I'd love to get the reaction to it. So there's a podcast that I've never seen before, but it features some you know famous Hollywood actors here from Lord of the Rings um, seated in the actual chairs. And that's Billy Boyd, who played Pippin, and Dominic Monaghan, who played Mary. And um, they had the uh, LGR, uh, Clint Bassinger, in to talk about retro gaming in general and also his reviews of retro games and his channel, et cetera, uh, type thing. And it's a, a pretty good interview. It's about an hour. They also have their own bits that they normally do. And then this is a regular podcast they do, so they interview all kinds of people. So it was interesting to have them just talking about retro in general. They're talking about you know, refurbishing arcade machines and what arcade machines they liked back in the day when they were young, what, you know, home video game consoles, home computers, et cetera. But then came a bit of a surprise, you know, probably about two thirds of the way through the interview. So I'll play that little bit here, but the whole podcast is actually pretty fascinating. I've never even heard the podcast before this. So hopefully YouTube doesn't stick a bunch of crappy ads in here. Yeah, it kind of, uh, it started that way, and then it sort of grew out of control, and now I'm surrounded by it everywhere. <laughs> it really began with, uh, you know, just remembering these things from childhood, seeing them at friends' houses, cousins' houses, and playing yeah. them there, but never really having much at home. And right? then, you know, seeing things in stores, and always, you know, I was just out of reach, and, you know, it could maybe afford a couple of games a year for the PC Ooh. primarily. I grew up as a, a computer gamer, but, yeah, as uh, I got a little older, and, you know, started making my own money and occasionally I would find old computers at thrift stores primarily and the uh, the games to go along with them and that was back when they were still more affordable you know you could get a computer for a couple of bucks as opposed to hundreds now so the uh, the retro scene has really <laughs> exploded but thankfully I got into it before it did any of that and now yeah it's uh, turned into a career talking about them well yeah because I'm looking at your channel and it's huge it shows you the interest that people really want to watch this stuff and mm. learn about it. Mm. I will give you a thousand points, which is quite a lot of points in this game. Oh, yeah. A thousand points if you have the my first computer and 500 points if you even know what it is. Clint, my first computer right. was called a Dragon 32. Uh, yes, huh. I actually have a, uh, a one that they released it here as the Taino Dragon, um, and it's the the same thing. It, nice kind of beigey cream case with black keys, and uh, starts up with yeah. a, sort of a green background and everything for where you could type in to load programs and such. Yeah, here it was the Taino Dragon. It was a Welsh computer, if I recall. So a well, Welsh well, computer, a thousand it's, points. Wow. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I remember Not too many Welsh PCs out there. No, and there's a there's a store in the UK called Boots, and it's sort of like a CVS, you know. 
Uh, it's Boots the Chemist, I believe. Boots the Chemist, exactly. Yeah. And Boots the Chemist sold the Dragon 32. It was the weirdest. It, it was, do you remember at that time, you, there was always a choice to be made. You get a VHS or you get a Betamax. And then whatever one you chose, the other one, you know, you either chose the right one or the wrong one, but one of them was going to disappear. Mm. And all my friends got the ZX 80 or 81, and I got the Dragon 32, and the Dragon 32 disappeared. And there was no games. Never heard of it. Nothing. I know. No one had. I'm, I'm really shocked that you've heard of that, gun. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That, sort of, that, that came and went. It was a very brief moment in time that it was even advertised at all. And then uh, what is a fascinating story with that. So the U.S. distributor for them um, ended up with this massive shipment because Dragon you know, went out of business and everything. And then there were just tons of them on pallets. And they ended up in a warehouse for 25, 30 years. And there were just unsold, brand new inbox Dragons sitting in a warehouse in California up until around 2012 or so. And uh, they finally started selling them. And I ended up getting one of those uh, new inbox. Nice. And that's how I got my Dragon, was, uh, was the old stock that just never sold. Oh, Billy, you should get one. Like See said. if you can get one. Glenn, Glenn, as I said, it's my birthday coming up on the 28th of August. <laughs> Dragon 32. Yes. 28th of August, by the way is when we are doing a live Friendship Onion yeah. in Toronto, Toronto on my birthday. Mm. If Clint arrived from North Carolina to Toronto with a Dragon 32 Wouldn't that on be his amazing? Back, was it, Clint, if you don't mind me saying, was it an expensive system to I mind? won't listen to this part. Earmuffs, William. <laughs> anyway, I'll let you guys... It was actually extremely cheap back then because... Oh, I'll let you guys uh, finish watching that on your own there. But I, I thought that was kind of fascinating to see some Hollywood actors and one actually had a Dragon 32 as his first computer growing up. So That's way cool. Billy Boyd's awesome. He can sing, too. He's put out some CDs. So good singer. Yeah. Now, one thing for our Dragon people in the audience, and Kieran in particular, since he actually has X were online, because Billy does sound pretty nostalgic about this machine. I was wondering, maybe, uh, Kieran, if you can maybe pop into this particular YouTube video here and maybe leave some comments with XRAR Online with some sample games that he might remember from the past. And if that goes really, really well, maybe we can have him pop on the show with some of the Dragon people. That would be pretty awesome. So uh, I suggest that maybe you should leave a comment and uh, a link to the XRAR Online with some sample games, et cetera, for him to try and see what they say. And that's the end of the news for this week. Uh, not yet. You forgot the most important thing. Shame on you. Huh. Well, that, if you're talking about uh, you know something that you're involved with, that's not that important. But go ahead. No, no. I just <laughs> want to bring bring everybody's attention to uh, Jim Brain's post uh, on the uh, GlennSiteCCC.com's website. Um, I don't know if everybody was aware, but uh, last weekend, uh, myself, Jim, and also uh, Tony Pedraza, uh, we all... Went to Chicago and looked at more hotels than we care to look at ever again. <laughs> so just let everybody know, I guess um, uh, we we probably will not be returning to the Elk Grove location because they quoted us a pretty high price to stay there uh, for 2023. And also, to be honest, too, uh, from the, um, the survey we did uh, last month, uh, a lot of people did not like the hotel portion of the uh of the Elk Grove location. So, um, so Jim and Tony and I went to, I want to say six, six or seven different locations. 
but uh, Jim made a post on there about all the different lo locations that we looked at. It goes in quite a great detail too. Um, but we pretty much have narrowed it down to a couple venues. Um, and then hopefully this time next week, I will be able to make the announcement uh, is my goal anyway. So, but I'll, I will take everybody's time on this, but just uh, go to Glenside CCC's website and look at Jim's post there. And it'll give you all the details that you probably would ever care to know about this procedure and, and what we're going through. So back to you, Curtis. Sorry, just typing in the message to six in the chat there. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a good thing that uh, you guys are doing that checking because I think the price increase they were quoting was like, like over double or triple or something like it was. Oh yeah. It, it was just, it was, uh, it was ridiculous. And, and we're not the only ones that are going through it because as I've been talking to other hotels, they're also getting other groups from the Elk Grove location who are getting the same treatment that we did with the astronomical price that they were, uh, asking for. So I, I think, and I've talked to some other people that they are getting away from the convention, uh, uh, events and want to do strictly just weddings. Cause it's, you know, you're in and out in a day, you can do three of them, you know, on Friday, Saturday and Sunday and make a higher profit off of it. So I think that's what's going on with that location. But, um, uh, the, and also too, just, uh, Jim is also looking for feedback too, from the community, uh, in that, uh, on that post. So definitely make sure you, uh, you know, give your feedback to Jim. Uh, right now, the one that we're kind of leaning to is the uh, Holiday Inn in Carroll Stream. Uh, it's a little bit smaller than the uh, Elk Grove location, but it's not an industrial park area either. So it's going to be in a really nice location with uh, restaurants, uh, gas stations, and shops and stuff all within a within the area. Uh, Curtis's favorite thing is he doesn't like Portillo's anymore since they made him wait for half an hour. Uh, yep. It does have a uh, <laughs> it does have have a restaurant there on site. Unfortunately, I don't serve lunch, so you're going to have to go with us to Portillo's for lunch there, uh, Curtis. I'm sure uh, there's a McDonald's nearby I can go instead, where I can get you know service in less than a day. <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, hopefully, uh, I mean it's a nicer location. It is it is uh, recently uh, been uh, renovated. So it's a uh, newer location. It's not a newer location, but it's a newer style looking. So uh, and it's bigger as far as show space goes. It's bigger than Heron Point is, right? It is bigger than Heron Point, but smaller than Elk Grove. So it's okay. going to be kind of in, in between. I believe it's thirty eight hundred square feet in the ballroom, and then I think the uh, presentation rooms was like six hundred and something square feet. Um, you know, so we may have two rooms. We may do with one room. Um, as I was think I was telling Curtis last night, auction items are hard, coming harder and harder to come by. So I don't think we're going to need a second room uh, to house all the auction items as, as it's getting harder and harder to come by. And just like we were talking last night, Curtis, that if you have a Cocoa 3, you'll probably want to put it onto eBay more than it is a donate to the club because you can get three 350 bucks for it. So, but um yeah, now it's an investment, not just a... <laughs> exactly. <Right. laughs> so hopefully I will have uh, more information this time next week, if not the week after. And, uh, and oh, and also just let you know, too, uh, that for the uh, Holiday Inn in uh, Carroll Stream, the weekend, the same date that we've been talking about, the uh, uh, April 21st and 22nd, I believe it was, or whatever weekend that is, is still in place, so... Yeah, because you had mentioned like one of the other ones that Jim had mentioned was going to be available, I think, the end of March. And like right, for myself that, personally, and this is just me being egotistical, et cetera, like my job 
especially now that it's starting to pick up to normal levels again. Um, that's that middle baseball season. I would not be able to make it. Well, like, and plus uh, also going to Chicago in, in March. It's a bit uh, risky. Yeah, you might be exactly. driving through snow for those that are not used to it. That might be a bit of a exactly. problem. Exactly. And that, and just so everybody knows, that's the, the location we're talking talking about for that one is the same location as VCF Midwest. We did talk to them. So basically on that location is that we have to spend $10,000 for, for the location mm-hmm. because they're not going to be able to rent the location uh, to anybody else because we'll have the whole run of the, of the, uh, of the venue. Um, so they do some strange things like, you know, we can give you the ballroom cheaper, but we may have to increase the hotel rooms. So instead of paying $119 a night, people might have to spend $150 a night, just for example, uh, or, you know, charge more for food and drinks. So, um, so I don't think that's going to be a likely candidate. And the other thing too, is we don't sell enough hotel rooms. Then the club is going to be on the hook for those unsold hotel rooms on top of that. So it's kind of, a, it's kind of, a, yeah, that was kind of a risky, risky. Um, um, yeah. If the show us. keeps getting bigger and bigger, maybe in the future, that might be an option, but for now, especially just, we're just coming back off COVID. I, I don't. Exactly. So we're kind of thinking we'll just go to the kind of like in between, you know, between the Elk Grove size and the Heron Point size. Uh, and then, you know, we'll give this a try. If it works out, then we'll book it, you know, for the next couple of years. I mean, these people are super nice. They're going way out of, our, out of their way to, uh, accommodate us. Um, a nice thing too. So this, this location is at the exact same exit at Heron point. So instead of making a turn to the East, you're going to make a turn to the West. So it's, it's on the same road. So, um, as the Heron point location. So, yeah, so anybody has been to the Heron point one for the previous Cocoa Fest there, will kind of know the route already. Exactly. Exactly. Turn. And also it's going to be closer to uh, fire and wines. So it's, uh, really down the street from, uh, from this new, new venue. If we just, yeah. And, and be honest, I, I know the, the, the restaurant that's on site there, which is a burger place where you basically make custom burgers. I think the average has like 1400 different combos of toppings. You can get it. It reminds me of a FUD records type thing where you custom make your own toppings. You have the whole thing. So. It sounds like it's more of a gourmet burger style place, but I, I do like trying those out. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll definitely have so, to try that out, hopefully. So I will uh, hopefully have everything ironed out here next week, if not the weekend after. And uh, I'll make the announcement here and also with the uh, the other podcast as well. Yeah. Also, Jim's actually in the chat now and he mentioned that's 3,800 square feet. I don't remember what Heron Point was. I, I think, think it Elk- was 2,100 square feet. So And Elkridge was what, 4,000 or 4,500? It was over, a little over 4,000. Yes. So that's pretty close to last year's location. Here. The that's conference room looks identical. The link on the internet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it very, it's very similar. Yeah. Now, the other one that you guys were talking about, the one that I believe UCF uses, which is a lot larger venue, I think that was like 6,000 or something, wasn't it? Oh, I think it's even more than that. I think it's like 60,000. It was some, it's crazy. Okay. It's a crazy amount. We would never use it. <laughs> <We'd>, <laughs> I think it was 2,100 square feet. So. And Elkridge was what four thousand or forty five? Oh, getting echo. Oh, here comes Jim. <laughs> That's pretty close to last year's location. Here, that conference room looks identical. Oh, Jim, I think Jim, I think you're <laughs> you're, you're echoing back you know, what we talked about fifteen seconds ago. Now, the other one that you guys were talking about, the one that I believe UCF uses, which is a lot larger figure, that was like six thousand. See, this is what happens when we have a uh, a Commodore guy, you know, in charge here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give a I'll give a second here for Jim to figure that out. So I think he just, <clears throat> sorry, sorry, there he goes. There he goes, Jim. I'll give you the floor, sir. No, that's okay. I just I, you guys sometimes ask me questions and chat is so 
delayed. So I thought I'd just come on in case you had a question you needed to ask or wanted some sort of additional detail. I, I guess like uh, I haven't had a chance to look too much at the hotel for that one that, you know, kind of seems to be the favored one at this point, but uh, it, it sounds like it's been renovated recently. So it should be pretty, pretty decent as far as connections and cleanliness. Yep. yep, exactly. So it, they have uh, elevators that don't light on fire too, I presume. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's going to be a problem at this one. So, I don't get stuck um, between floors. It depends on depends on how hard you guys are on the on the elevators. If, if you, <laughs> oh, I don't man. think it's the, I don't think it's the venue. <clears throat> no comment. I did hear from I did hear from Grant that it sounds like coffee's gotten expensive at every hotel. So I'm going to have to run to the gas station to get coffee. Is that what I heard? Yeah, yeah. Because coffee, I think, is still like thirty two dollars a gallon, even at this other venue. So. So one thing we kind of talked about last night, uh, you know, after the game on challenge part was done, was that you can get those big, you know, coffee. What do Dunkin you call donuts? them? The, the ones that you use like at church functions and stuff where you, you know, yeah. so much coffee type thing. Like, is that something we could bring our own coffee? Was that something they would object to? And just somebody brings one of those big pots where we rent one or something? I would say you would need to keep yeah. it in your room. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I don't, I don't think we can, I mean... We haven't yet worked with this group, so I don't know how much of a stickler they are, but I wouldn't want to kind of flaunt it right at the very beginning. Okay. And no, I just didn't know if they had a policy already in place like that. No, they we do have to use our own stuff. Okay. Uh, yeah. Most of these venues, I think Heron Point was pretty unique in that regard. Most venues are going to have a, um, you know, a no, um, you know, no kind of sanctioned food and drink being brought in because, cause they do want that overpriced coffee. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they want that money, right? Center. That's right. That's right. Uh, Heron Point didn't seem to have anything like that. So, of course well, yeah, they they did. I mean, they did have an option. Tony said me told me that you know they did quote him, but again, I think Heron Point was kind of a unique thing. They didn't necessarily want to do it. It was more like, you know, if you have a conference and you're expecting us to do it, we can offer that feature. But when they said no, we just don't want it. And of course, the only guy that was over there at the time was the security guy, and he doesn't care, right? All he wants to make sure is we're not going to steal any of the stuff at Heron Point. So he's not going to pay attention to any of that. I don't. I don't think they really paid any attention to it. But like, um, uh, actually, Elk Grove Village wasn't at least at least for the couple years that VCF was there and the first time we were there. Um, I mean, they didn't seem overly problematic because like my daughter comes and she brings brownies and stuff like that, and they didn't they didn't come in and complain about that or whatnot. But I think if we would have not purchased like the cupcakes through them or 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 not wanted to do the catered dinner through them then they probably would have box. So I guess it's just shades of gray, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I think if you was to bring in a huge coffee maker, <laughs> set it up on a table, <laughs> I think they would they would probably say something. So I would say if you want to do that Curtis, bring it oh, in. Yeah, I just wonder if there's a possibility that like I, I didn't know what the, the the policy was. Yeah, yeah, so just set it up in your hotel room and then just run back to your hotel room and uh, get a refill of coffee cuz uh Set I it will. up in your car and just have people coming out to the car. Exactly. Get the block yeah, charge them. I'll charge them. That's good. But <laughs> I will be set up I, I to will. the driver's side window, hand you some money, hand him a cup. I'll buy a coffee ticket. <laughs> so we'll work it out. I mean, we're definitely going to put a cap on it though this year because I don't think we I don't think Jim wants to have a heart attack <laughs> on a thousand dollar coffee bill again. So I think a thousand dollar coffee bill is. I mean, you're right. If Rick, if 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 we said, hey, we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna do like little tickets like they do at a wedding, right? And you can buy a coffee ticket and it's so much money or whatnot. And we ended up with enough money to cover thousand dollars worth of coffee and tea and hot cocoa. Sure, but <laughs> man, that thousand dollars that was just that was that was really that was the first time I've truly been shocked about a beverage. <laughs> 
<laughs> in the last 20 years. So, And another, and another little thing, too, that they did tell me um, is that in the lobby, they do serve free coffee from 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock. So Ooh. might use that. And then after 10 o'clock, we might add a couple, you know. Coffee. After they see how much we some of us drink, though, I think they'll start charging for that too. <laughs> so, Jim, do you do you want to talk to them about the other locations that we went to? Like well, I mean, I mean, O'Hare was O'Hare's was a little smaller yet. It was about thirty one hundred square feet. The problem with it is it, you know, the the room is has a very low ceiling. It's like a eight foot ceiling, and you know that makes a space look smaller. Um, and it's it's. Um, obviously smaller yet than the Carroll stream location, which was almost 4,000 square feet. And then the other one was their, their additional rooms for like a presentation or whatnot were on a different floor. So you would need to go to a different floor in order to attend those. Whereas at the Carroll stream location, just like at uh, Elk Grove and the, um, and the Heron point locations, it was just a hallway, you know, walk away and, and, you know, been very short, maybe, you know, 10, 10, 15 steps. Um, so I worry about <clears throat> supporting the presenters uh, at the O'Hare location, uh, the the Holiday and O'Hare location, just because I'm I'm worried that a lot of people are going to say, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to like the presentation, and so I don't want to go to all the effort to leave the exhibit hall and go over and try to navigate my. And it wasn't just it wasn't just you went to the elevator, you went upstairs, and the and the rooms were just like right outside the elevator. You had to get out of the elevator and then essentially walk down, I don't know, maybe 50, 100 feet down to the end of the of the kind of hotel space in order to get to these two rooms. They were nice rooms, I will say that, um, but that was a challenge. And then <clears throat> um, the other location I really feel bad about, which is the Hoffman Estates Holiday Inn. It was a beautiful location. It looks brand new. Um, I don't know how many people have a crossover between retro computers and, and outdoor activities, but it's literally like right outside the parking lot for Cabela's on the west side of Chicago. <clears throat> and um, and they had, I mean, they had a nice venue, but it's 2,000 square feet. It, that is the only room they have. Um, and so, that, you know, there's really nowhere for, uh, uh, for presentations. And of course, 2,000 square feet is less. Um, you know, you were asking earlier about uh, Heron Point. So Heron Point was about 2,100 square foot in the main kind of exhibit hall. And then the, the area where we normally did presentations is about 1,700 square feet. So in, in total, it was 3,700, but of course it was broken up over two rooms. <clears throat> so 2,000 square feet, we haven't, you know, we probably haven't fit in 2,000 square feet for both presentations and uh, exhibits for probably, you know, five years or so. And so I think that would be unrealistic, but there, you know, like I, like I mentioned in the post, there may be an opportunity for us to do something else, right? That's that's not a you know that's not our main show or or just some of us together. Like this show is kind of a outgrowth of a bunch of people who who wanted to to chat about going to Cocoa Fest. There may be some smaller group of us that wants to put on something for which that for which that particular venue would be ideal. And it sounded to me like I mean Grant did most of the negotiation or, or discussions with the lady, but it sounds like she is super excited to book something into that space, probably because it's brand new and they're looking to, to leverage the space. <clears throat> and then you might want to yeah. explain a little bit more about the Clarion, uh, the BCF location a little bit better. Yeah. the I mean, Clarion and, and my wife and I stayed in the Marriott Schomburg, which is a beautiful location as well. I mean, we just, that was where we stayed since it was one of the hotels we were looking at. <clears throat> Those both are, 
I mean, they're 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 ritzier locations. Probably Clarion is the le- it's it's maybe not as ritzy as the Marriott Schomburg. Marriott Schomburg just had a twenty two million dollar overhaul, and and it's everything you think of when you think of like a big wedding, right? The chandeliers, the twenty some foot ceilings, and the main venue space. I think was just shy of nine thousand square feet. It, the nice part about the Schomburg one is that you can cut it up into you know with the with the walls that that they they use the the insulated movable walls, you can, <clears throat> you can chop that space up into a, a many different configurations. And some of those configurations would fit for us. Um, but the Clarion, you know, for those folks who have been to VCF Midwest, um, it's, it's a huge, hum- I mean, it's a humongous space, by far the largest of the spaces that we went and looked at, but it is, I mean, the main hall is when it's all, got all the air walls um, uh, pushed back, it's 12,000 square feet. Um, and like Granite indicated, you know, they're not willing to, he didn't, he didn't feel comfortable, the, the, the venue coordinator, he didn't feel comfortable renting it out to two dissimilar types of groups um, on the same weekend. So essentially you're paying for the whole venue, whether you use it or not. And I'll be honest, my concern with both venues, um, I know I put them in as options and we could pursue them. And I think maybe the Schaumburg one would come in, you know, maybe more palatable because I think we, you know, we might be able to get that venue a little bit less expensive than the 10 grand that it's going to cost the Clarion. But uh, the the main challenge I see with those is, and I know some people even notice this with the Elk Grove Village location, if you don't comfortably fill a location, then you can create this perception that that whatever it is that you're holding is shrinking or becoming less, you know, less well attended. And it has nothing to do with how many people show up. It's just the fact that the space overwhelms what you're putting in the space. And so I worry that that's right. That's right. And so it works the same um, way when it's too full also. That's right. It is right. You know, it's, it's either way. So it's, it's almost, it's problematic because, you know, uh, you don't want to have a space that's, that's significantly smaller than what you need because then everybody says, well, I don't have fun because I bumped into everybody all day long and there was nowhere to move around and all that. Conversely, I don't think you want a space that's too much larger um, than what the club can consume um, for fear people will say, well, I don't know. It looks like it's on its way out, you know, when in fact it was well attended and there were a lot of exhibits, but you know, you're only using a quarter of the space that you are. And even if we were to shut the air walls off and whatnot, I worry that just, the space just looks huge. And then when you go in, it, it just, it looks like you're, <laughs> you're, you're like a little nothing in a corner of some big other empty space. <clears throat> Personally, I'd rather have too much space and too little. Um, I hate it. when it's I, I, <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, to be fair, we definitely don't want to, we don't want to, you know, we don't want people to be packed in like sardines, but, but like I said, we normally, we use, I mean, realistically of the 40, 4,500 square feet that was in the main hall of Elk Grove Village, we probably used three quarters of that. So, you know, a little under 3,000 square feet. Um, and, and, there, and, and our layout was pretty comfortable. I mean, when, when VCF Midwest was there, they, you know, they, they managed to put in a few more tables than that. But um, so I think even at 3,800 3, square feet, you have, you have plenty of room and and plenty of room to grow. Um, you get up into the, you know, like let's say you get, for instance, if you do the Eclarion location, there's really no way to subdivide it down below six thousand, right? You wouldn't. You could put yourself in three thousand square feet, um, but then you are a little crowded. 
And then, um, and then if you go to the two, you know, two of 3000 square feet chunks, then you're at 6,000 square feet. And I believe it'll dwarf us. Um, plus that huge foyer, which is probably 8,000 square feet in the hallway, which is another 2000 to 3000 square feet just by itself. So, you know, it's nice. The other one is, you know, realistically, I think we need to be, you know, somewhat realistic on how big is Cocoa Fest going to get, right? Because, Clarion's nice and we could set up a, a huge, you know, long-term investment in that like VCF has. Um, but I think, you know, in order to make the finances work, you really need to be on a track to fill that location um, in some, you know, within a decade or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to short sell the cocoa community, but 12,000 square feet is a lot of space to fill and a lot of space to sell. <clears throat> Yeah, I think that's why we'd have to wait and see and just kind of see what the trend is in the next couple of years. And then if it looks like it's continuously going up, then maybe you might think about it right now. It's it's way too oversized for us. And that's probably what I'm gonna, you know, I know Jason, you know, Jason Timmons has, you know, he introduced us to the Clarion Inn, you know, venue coordinator. And the venue coordinator talked to us in person last week and you know, he kind of laid it out. I, I very it was very nice that he laid it out very transparently. Um, and, you know, what he needs in order to make this work and, and how we might be able to accomplish that when I, it was very helpful, but I, I do think, you know, if we can make the Carroll stream location, um, financially work for us, because I think the venue is fine. Um, but if we can make it financially work for us, um, what we may go back and tell the venue coordinator and Jason to say, listen, you know, we, we need to grow a little bit before we, before we can consume Commit that to something space. of that size. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then there's a there's um, a bit of everyone's assuming that the current surge is the new normal and it's really just two years of pent-up demand and so maybe a year or two from now right the world changes again that's true and 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 very much so because you know my my son whom some of you know brent you know he's married his wife actually works for a marriott a set of marriott properties and there has been guidance that was delivered to hoteliers um, earlier in the year saying, listen, you know, everybody wants to get back into hotels. So now you can, because there's going to be pent up demand, you can, you can increase your pricing considerably. And so that, you know, that's what we're seeing, right? They're seeing people following that guidance. My concern is, and I think I mentioned this in the Cocoa mailing list in response to um, Alan Huffman's uh, comment. I said, what I, what I worry is that, you know, we're going to go to all this effort, right? Grants went to all the effort to communicate with these folks. We're going to, you know, we went and did a physical, you know, view of the various locations. We'll pick a location. We'll sign a contract. We'll, you know, we'll figure out how to make this work from a financial standpoint. And then later in the year, when especially the Elk Grove location, which was astronomically more expensive um, than, than, than nearly all of the other venues that we look at, is going to find themselves with no, nobody's going to want to take up their, their product at that price. And I worry they're going to come back like late in the year and say, um, you know, we'll make you a really good deal. You know, we'll give you the venue next year for a thousand dollars or something like that. Well, that'd be a great deal, except we've already signed a contract with another venue. And, and to be, and to be honest, you know, I, I negotiate, you know, hundreds or, you know, quarter million dollars, quarter of a million dollar deals on a reasonable, on a regular basis. And I kind of have a hang up about somebody's going after and saying, oh no, we're going to, you know, we're going to charge you $4 and 50 cents a square foot to, to be here. And then when they don't get any takers on that, then all of a sudden they come back later and they say, well, we'll make you a deal for 10 cents on the, you know, 10 cents on the dollar for a, for a venue. Are you really, do you really want to have a long-term 
you really want to have a long-term right. business relationship with somebody who who does that, right? <clears throat> yeah, that gets kind of dirty. It's dirty business, and I'm not sure I'm real comfortable with doing that. Obviously, if the club feels okay with it, then that's one thing. But I'm I'm not a huge fan of that. I'll be honest. <clears throat> well, plus, as you mentioned, and Grant mentioned too, I mean, there was there was a fair number of complaints about the rooms themselves. Never mind the venue. So mm-hmm. you've got double hits against them there. So. Yeah, and, and, and I, elevators lighting on fire was not a positive. Well, they, I mean, they should <laughs> recognize that their their product was in shambles, and they need to take a couple of years to get it back up to snuff, and they didn't. So, too bad. I well, I mean, I you know, I would I would counter that a little bit. I, I do agree and acknowledge that the hotel rooms had challenges, as we know, the leadership changed or the management changed two weeks prior to the show. And I think a lot of that, it's the same with businesses when when larger companies buy a business from a private equity firm or whatever, they they rack and stack all the issues so they can just, you know, get it out the door, right? And so I I pretty sure that if they were starting this conversation with this other management group six months ago, the the management, the previous management of the comp- of the venue probably said, I don't want to make any big investments to fix anything because we're selling it anyway. So just patch it up. Yeah, so leave it up to the new owners to can That's right. And those new owners deal with it. What are they going to well, do? The, back out the of the November fest. There was a, a wall of drywall mud buckets, but no other construction material. They were just slapping mud over everything and putting right. wallpaper over the top of the mud and calling it a. <laughs> right. But uh, but I mean I I. I'm willing to I'm willing to say okay well you know we'll we'll see if that improves as the new leadership gets you know their their hands dirty with getting the the venue back in operation but but just the cost you know you were asking how many times it was 10 times oh, 10 times right. the new the new cost was 10 times the previous one so um and 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 it was stupid stuff too like the the um the actual number we got was more like 15 times and what I realized very quickly is that previously we had not paid for Friday move-in, right? It, we had a we had a deal where it was like right of first refusal. If they didn't sell the Friday venue, or they didn't sell the venue on Friday, then we get access to it all day on Friday to do, you know, the table the setups, etc. Yeah, table setup and and all that. And then everybody came in at five o'clock on Friday or whatever, and they set up. And we didn't actually pay for that. We just paid for Saturday and Sunday. Well, when they sent the new contract, they they charged us for the entire room for Friday, right? Both rooms actually for Friday. And and I'm like, no, we're not going to, I mean, we wouldn't do that. Right. If, if, if the, if we, if somebody else rented that room out on Friday, then we, we would just send a note out to everybody and say, Hey, you know, we don't know that it's worth it to pay for the room on Friday night. So we're just going to, we're going to set up earlier on, on Saturday, right? We'll open the room at six o'clock in the morning and everybody get their rear down there and set your stuff up and we'll start the show at 10 or something like that. Um, so we wouldn't buy the entire room at that inflated price for all of Friday just for setup. <clears throat> yeah. That's a nice goodwill thing too, because if they don't have the room rented, then you know that encourages you to come back because they're easy it, to work with. It does. Like I said, the previous previous leadership, the leader the or management that worked with Jason and worked with us at least in November and most of for the 2022 show, I think they were fine. They, you know, it was it was good give and take. Um the new Lead, the new management, I'm, you know, like I said, I, I, we've Grant and I first looked at the quote, and we were just like, oh, they must have added a bunch of zeros in here, and the, and, and yeah, it was, it was a mistake. So. They screwed up their <laughs> spreadsheet right. or something. Yeah. Can you can you go back and check on that? You know, and and then it wasn't. It was that was actually the quote that they have. So and you know the venue to 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 Grant's point, you know, maybe not to belabor it, but the 
the current venue, the Elk Grove venue, it, it looks pretty lived in. And the, the <laughs> Carol Stream location is beautiful. I mean, you saw the pictures and obviously seeing it in person, it's, it's just really nice. And so to charge, try to charge, you know, five, six times um, what, what another venue like that is charging and not look anywhere near as nice in the hotel rooms either. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. And I know they promise that like, well, we're going to make this huge renovation, but you know, we're, we're committing to the rooms as they exist today. I can't commit to rooms as you think they might be in 12 months. Right. Cause what if you don't get that renovation done Then what am I going to do? What, you know, what am I going to do? I end up paying a premium for what I previously, you know, paid a pittance for. <clears throat> Okay, I don't. I don't have any more questions. I, it sounds like you guys uh, kind of like really scoped out things and kind of figured out what what's doable, yeah. what is not, and what is affordable, what is not. The coffee part's disappointing, but that's beyond your control. <laughs> <laughs> we'll enough. work that out. We'll work it out. Yeah, I mean, if there's if there's a station right next door, I mean, and if they have free coffee in the lobby at the beginning, that's that's enough to get me started in the day. I can run up to my room and you know get the next two cups of the little one in the room there at lunchtime or something if I have to. Yeah, and like I said again, this location for this venue is not in an industrial area like the Elk Grove. I mean, it's in a very nice area Ooh. with with stores and restaurants, and yes, there's a Portillo's just a couple miles down the road, so. I think everybody will be happier with this location. So, and if you want to go to McDonald's or or Burger King, I can't remember. Anyways, there's a fast food restaurant right down the street too. And there's yeah. a. It sounds like it's the right the size price. for our current size too. So exactly, it is. So it's hopefully, a, Jim and I will get everything buttoned up, and I can hopefully make an announcement within the next week or two. So, cool. I will. I will say that I think you know, given just changes in, I mean things are getting more expensive. So be prepared for the fact that, you know, like table fees may have to, may have to migrate upwards a little bit. Um, I saw other shows like Tandy assembly are offering sponsorships. We may want to consider that as a way. And there's two things. There's, there's two things working against this. One is inflation and the other one is as grant indicated. Um, And I know people will probably judge me or second guess me till the, till the cows come home. But um, you know, we, we unloaded a lot of our pent-up auction stuff in November because it had been hanging around for a decade. But we're not getting necessarily a ton of auction materials. Um, we'll probably get more since we have a year to, to between fest this time as opposed to six months. But but I think we need to be more realistic on what the fet, what the auction is going to bring in in the fest. And so we need to kind of be more conservative in how much profit that's going to bring in to offset the cost of the venue. Yeah. And that's just the retro computing as a whole is getting really expensive. Everybody's, you know, there's a lot more demand for them now. So the price has gone up on every platform. Mm-hmm. Um, you right. make money on eBay now. It's an investment. It's not just a collector thing. That is right. Maybe you just got to get some of the famous people to sign a bunch of shirts and auction those off. That's what you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that meant, and that may be, you know, another piece. I'm, I was just, I, I just was, um, uh, came back from VCF Southeast, which was in um, uh, Atlanta, outside of Atlanta. And um, uh, the Southeast, I talked to Earl, who is the president of that club, and, or ACHS, Atlanta Historical Computing Society, AHCS, I guess is what it is. Um, and they do, they they make t-shirts up. And I know, I know Glenside used to do t-shirts and sell them as a fundraiser for the show. We probably do need to look at being more creative we kind of got a little lazy on having to you know having to um 
look at the profit centers for the uh, for the show in the past few years, just because we either haven't had a show or we had all that auction uh, material that we could, you know, unload very easily and 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 gave quite a bit of money to the uh, to the club as a part of it as a as a function of that. So we probably need to look at stuff like that and see. Um, but the other one is obviously, you know, table fees have been the same for a number of years, and so do we need to rationalize increase? I know there was. You know, in in some of the discussions over the past few months, people are like, "Yeah, oh, twenty dollars—that's nothing, right?" I'm not gonna I'm not gonna not do it if it's twenty or thirty dollars, or if they increase it to double, it's not that big a deal. But I I do want to make sure that we're just—I really would like to just recover um, what is necessary to put on the fest because I, I I don't see a lot of value in us continuing to increase the Glenside um treasury because we don't do anything with that money that's there so if we were doing something with it then it'd be different but it just sits there and makes sense six cents on the dollar every year so or or 0.6 cents on the dollar every year whatever it is the interest rate is on a on a checking account which is worthless so <clears throat> so and, and glenside's a non-profit so basically you do want to break even that's that's the goal you're not trying to make it, a ton of money so it it is it is and and you know i mean I think everybody kind of looks at it as like, let's make sure there's plenty of money in there so that we, so that we don't have, if we have some thing like nobody comes to a fest and we have to pay for it out of the, out of the treasure or whatever, then, you know, then so be it. And that's fine. But I think we, you know, we got $17,000 in the treasury right now. And that's, that's plenty in my opinion to be comfortable with the group. I know there are groups that don't have any money. And so everybody's scraping around to do stuff, but there's plenty in the, there's plenty in the treasury right now. And so charging more for people to come to the fest or, or have a have a table or whatever at the fest, only to put that money in the treasury where it doesn't do anything. I'm not. I'd rather let everybody have that money and they could go put it yeah, towards the down costs payment on and it. then you, know, right. you don't need to make a profit on it. I, I like right. the idea of bringing the t-shirts back. I know Rainbow Fest did that, Coco Fest at the beginning too, and I always like having that souvenir where, and I've shown them on yeah. the show, you know, back from '86 on, where I'd yeah. have something as a souvenir and remember that. So I'd pick up a t-shirt. Oh, well, I remember I met Steve York at this show or whatever type thing, and having that come back and be an official club fundraiser, I definitely would buy one. Yeah, that'd be my suggestion is sell more merch, you know, not just yeah. T-shirts, but, you know, buttons, mouse pads, uh, you know, stuff like that. So stickers, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's fine. As far as T-shirts go, I'll just, you know, I know Grant early in, in the show was, you know, you were asking like what kind of announcements you want. I think that would be a request of mine is, you know, if somebody's interested in helping out with just that piece or maybe to to Fred's point, the idea of of, of sellable merch at the show that would be great. I'll be honest. I love the idea of a t-shirt. I really do. I, I absolutely do. I have so many t-shirts from these events that I need another t-shirt like I need a hole in the head. So it's really not something that <laughs> I want to take up and go. But somebody well, there, you've got auction out. items now you can put in. Yeah, I do. I have a ton of them. But I am. I think somebody out there has a passion for that. So if they do, then well, absolutely. <clears throat> when it comes to something like t-shirts, it's probably something you want most of them pre-sold so that you can order a fixed quantity of them mm-hmm. and then have Discount. just whatever's left to fill mm-hmm. out an order for the show. Yeah. Yep. Or you can sell them online afterwards. Like, I mean, like, like Coco talk has their own t-shirts, Taylor and Amy show have their own t-shirts, et cetera. And, mm-hmm. and there, there are a lot of t-shirt places now that do the on demand thing. Obviously those would probably cost a bit more than bulk order mm-hmm. a few to begin yep. with, but if you can get it like a minimum order and then you can sell them off on the, on the website afterwards type thing. Yeah. Buy it at the fest and it shows up home. Yep. yep. I'm, I'm, I have no, I'm, I'm sure the club, I know we've done it in the past and I know that we talked about it. it. It usually just ends up being something where 
Um, the fest grows very close in time and it's not something that's already kind of taken care of. And so it kind of gets dropped at the last minute because it's not an absolute requirement. So I think now is a great time to say, you know, who out there has a passion for that? Because I know there's a great, there's some artwork. So there's yeah. some art artistic skills necessary and whatnot to that stuff like merch and whatnot. Um, and, you know, just get in touch with me or Grant or, or somebody from the club because we'd love to have somebody that has a passion around that to to bring that to fruition. I'm trying to remember there was somebody at the fest who was still at Heron Point that did shirts on their own that they sold. I'm trying to remember that was it the design. Yeah. They were well, white. Do, let me was know. It, was it Carlos? Yeah, it might have been Carlos. I thought, I, I, that would be my first thought, but <clears throat> and I know Ron. I think you've you've designed some shirts. I don't think I, I can't remember if they were used or not, but I think Ron Devote actually helped design some. Design. So we actually kind of had a competition there where people were kind of like putting submissions of what the design would be for that particular year. But kudos, kudos to uh, kudos to Grant for contacting a lot of it's it's a lot of work. It's unfortunate that we had to do that. I, I really was kind of hoping we'd have a longer term relationship with our existing venue. But um, kudos to Grant for for reaching out and grabbing these additional locations. And so hopefully we'll make the Carol Stream location a, a workable one. And um, and then we'll be done. We'll have a date. We'll have a venue. Everybody can make their plans accordingly. And then, you know, we'll move on. And I get on. to try a new burger joint, so I'm, I'm all good with that, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 17 grand makes me think of uh, free SDC for everybody that comes through the front door. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> okay. I'll... I'll you you go ahead and join us. You go in one of the one of the business meetings and you bring that up. We'll see how that floats. Okay. <laughs> well, if you buy them in in uh, bulk, it'd be half the price, right? The, the problem is, Ron, you can't buy them in bulk because the chip is getting impossible to find. So both Ed and Frank are having trouble even getting chips. You could only make a certain amount and then you're out. Well, there's going to be a second gen one, right? Nope. We're still waiting for Darren to officially prove because he has to allow because he's in control of the design. He has to allow them to switch chips. And up till now, he's, he, he doesn't want to do that. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So uh, maybe we so, can have, uh, you know, these uh, boxes like this with our logo on it so that we can cry. <laughs> that's right. I, now, one of the things, yeah, one of the things that, you know, I know Mark Marlette doesn't sell the super ID anymore, as far as I know. And I know there's been some people that have asked if there was ever going to be another batch of the Glenside ID controller. Um, so there may be an opportunity to do some sort of hardware project as a as another piece, as a profit center or whatnot. We may actually take some serious look at doing something like that along with the, the T-shirts and the merch idea, just because I'm running the numbers right now and I haven't shared with, with Grant yet. But I mean... The, the amount that the Carol Stream location is quoting us is going to be a bit of a stretch for us. So it's not going to be just a slam dunk for us to do it with vin, or with table fees and an auction proceeds and, and membership fees or, or admission fees. Even if we bring back admission fees, it's not going to kind of just be a, a you know just like oh this is no big deal. So we've got to we've got to we've got to get more creative. Luckily, we've got almost 12 months to do so. Yeah, and I think one thing has changed since Glenside was manufacturing the ID controllers uh, earlier is that you've got like like Ken sponsored PCBWay and other people that can actually manufacture is a lot cheaper than you would have done back in the day, so that you can actually make a bit of a profit on it and still sell it for a reasonable price. Right, and there may be there may be an opportunity to do like a retro kind of because the current Glenside ID controller is. I mean, it's this enormous board. Yeah, it's, it's like the size thing. of a yeah. It doesn't it fit any cartridge case known to man. That's right. 
So, you know, maybe there's two versions of it when we get people to buy two, right? We buy one as a collector's edition, which is this old, you know, this really long board that's, you know, like 30 or $40. And then we do one that's actually like, you know, like you And maybe even manufacturing some other ones like Pedro's come up, like we just showed today in the news, but Pedro did a little static RAM 64K upgrade, mm-hmm. you know, that type of stuff where he doesn't really want to be a manufacturer per se. Like maybe that's something we could pick up some designs that are, you know, kind of donated out to the public anyway. And actually, because some people just don't want to do mm-hmm. that, to order custom made boards from PCB way or whatever else. And right. they could just get it, you know, Glenn's I can make a few, maybe do them on demand each year. You can come pick them up at the fest type thing and, you know, right. make a bit of profit or two. Yeah. I think the, the key is making sure that, you know, we, we, we want to be just like, I think Grant mentioned earlier that although I don't know of any current cocoa periodicals, the, the stated, you know, per, the stated point of the newsletter was not to compete with those periodicals. I think the same is true for these kind of things. You, you wouldn't want to be in a position where you're, no, like like the SDC, you you'd be competing with Ed, you'd be competing yeah. with Frank. You don't want to do that. But if it's something that you know Pedro's come up with a design, has no interest in manufacturing himself, nobody else has mm-hmm. really jumped out for it. You know, you could just say order ten or whatever for a fest or whatever. So yep. Sorry, I didn't mean to take over your conversation, but hopefully that answered everybody's questions. No, no, thanks oh, a lot, Jim. I appreciate true. it. Very helpful. All I don't know. Do we have any anything else in the show to discuss? I guess we got project updates uh, and acquisitions if anybody has. Yeah, that'd be the next item. I already sure. mentioned my one little update is that uh, Floyd Wrestler's space app. I managed to find it again, so that'll be on the next COU, but that's about it for me. Anybody else? Anybody else? Or anybody I really have an update? update but, but I have a, a concept here. Here is my Greg Blowdow submission concept. <coughs> We're going to all turn in our articles to Coco One Two Three in different formats. I'm going to pick four <laughs> Data Generals AOS VS, and I'm going to send it on nine track tape. Oh, there you go. <laughs> are you going to be running at uh, 1600 BPI or 800? Um, what are we at? We are at uh, 1600. Okay. So, so cool. my old PDP 11 should be able to read that. That'll be good. You know, <laughs> I, I got to be, we'll use radio waves at 75 baud. Can we, we, can we refax type. listings over to, uh, to Grant? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> it is possible. Okay, so, so now we just need a physical address and let's inundate him with media. <laughs> <laughs> I just have a small update. Go ahead, James. Um, the arcade game designer compiler is up and running. I added a peephole optimizer so it makes better code. And at the moment, I am piecing, getting the compiler output to piece together with the, um, the game engine. There's a few little things that were different because I did the one that was uh, based on the 6809 port and the other was based on the 6502 port. So there's a few things that are named slightly different that I got to redo. And I have to do the keyboard IO, which is, I've already done some of it this morning while you guys were talking. And I have to do the interrupt handler. And then I should be up and up And for and those running. that don't know what your project is, or the, uh, the AGD, the game designer originally on the Spectrum, this is your MC10-6803 version you're talking about, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And it should also work on the original Alice. Right, right. Yeah. Cool. 
Anybody else have a project update or acquisition I'm going to talk about? I suppose I could give a, a, a little update as well. Um, I've started work on Andark 3 again. And um, uh, yeah, just just uh, basically working on the graphics for all of the uh, various rooms that make up uh, the adventure game. And it's rather painstaking work. It's all using, well, most of it is using draw statements that um, are copied into high memory on the Coco 3. And then the game reads the draw statements from high memory and then renders them on the screen. And um, the uh, not quite satisfied with the results just because it seems to run kind of slowly. So I need to figure out a way to optimize it and speed it up. But uh, yeah, our progress is going slowly. Uh, it's just kind of tedious, uh, you know, uh, coding all of those draw statements and so that's that's just what just a quick question on on the way you're reading it you said you're poking it to high memory so are you yeah. just using a for next loop peeking it back in to, to get to the drawstring basically yeah i'm i'm doing a for next loop with an l peak and uh and then yeah, l peaks l peak is slow so that would yeah. be part of it <laughs> <laughs> is there a faster way uh, <laughs> uh one of the ways that like nick and a few others do to load graphics and stuff is they'll reserve an 8K MMU chunk in the lower 32K. Your basic program has to be small enough to handle this. This may not work in your case, but you can just poke that one MMU block and then you could use just a regular peak, which is a bit faster. And then you can use the ampersand H using hex, which is also a little bit faster. And that might get your speed well, back up. <clears throat> or you could just write a little ML routine that just grabs it out for you at full time. Uh, yeah, I would just do a user machine language routine that copies oh. it into the same, same string and it'll be, you know, it can be fast. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking is uh, maybe uh, rewriting that routine in, in ML or something that uh, might speed it up a lot. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Cool. Well, so that's good to hear you're working on the game. I know I gave you some suggestions and a couple of minor bug fixes for the Control 3 that would be part yeah. of the view. Yeah. Thank and some you. of them I meant more to be long term because I'll have to do some changes on my end to handle some of that too, but just yeah. some thoughts I had. Well, that well, one of them I've already implemented. I've already made the fix. So, um, oh, okay, cool. That's that null thingy with the yeah, the uh, null, the null yeah. value thing. Yeah, I fixed it already. So, yeah, yeah, I put my user hat on and blew up the program basically. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, but it looks really good. It's it's actually advanced more since the last time we showed it on the show. But we'll keep that, uh, I think, for the actual release because hopefully it's not too far off, depending on where it goes. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've kind of run out of bugs to squash, so it. <laughs> Pretty close to being done, unless some other people find more bugs that I haven't found. Yeah, that's where I thought I was until Jim Gary started testing his basic nine code, and he found three bugs in in the span of a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, thanks for your help with that. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Anybody else updates or acquisitions? No, but we should have a Jim Jerry uh, corner and have him come on and and you know talk about his own stuff that he does. You know, we have to get him down to a fest is what we need to do. Yeah, we need to get him. But he, he would be fun. About an hour long of the show by himself. Yep. <laughs> and that's just to cover last week's programs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening. He was in the chat earlier, so I don't know if he's still listening or not. Yeah, there he is. He said, send air ticket. <laughs> We've done that before for Simon, so never know. Or Ken, you can just show. swing by from your cabin, go pick him up in the uh, Maritimes and bring him down. Yeah, that's just, uh, you know, 
That's like half a, thousand, a West Virginia trip or something, miles. isn't it? Yeah, a couple <laughs> thousand miles detour. Thousand here, thousand there. Yeah. Are we ever going to have a game we play on the uh, microcolor computer? We did a. Uh, was it Pac Man we picked last we time? One. Yeah, we had Pac Man. That's about it, though, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it was part of the MC10 special. I guess it's. Yeah. We were talking we, at one, one point of about days. possibly doing Dragon and MC10 as an annual thing, as opposed to just when we get a bunch of guests together. That might be a good idea to actually throw in like an MC10 game once a year and a Dragon specific game once a year to kind of cover that. And we cover could have letters. a Cuthbert special. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's been so much game development on the MC10 lately, and now James is working on the, the AGD engine for it as well. That yeah, we could have like a, I'm sure we could do it like an annual MC10 game, and we've got emulators and stuff that'll handle it too. So right, including online, there's an MC10 em- emulator itself that James kind of favors, and I think Xwer supports MC10 online now too. The Xwer online, if I remember, plus Dragon, plus Coco. And it's on the pie. Yeah. Main, et cetera. Anybody else? Or should we call it a show? And I'll, I'll give a reminder right now, even if some other people have some stuff to say, that the Amigos, of course, are having their um, fundraiser for the Children's Miracle Network hospital stuff that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we've got the, uh, the bit.ly slash Amigathon 2022. Uh, feel free to go over there and watch them play a bunch of games. They've got another probably about six hours left of that. I think it ends at 9 Eastern. Um, but if you have a couple bucks, you can donate to the cause. It'd be great. At last I saw they just passed the $4,000 mark. So I guess the Twitch link changed because it stopped working. Or it could be their hillbilly internet, as they call it, just decided to shut down the middle show. That's (laughs) happened before. And if you guys get a chance to stop over at Ron's garage and pick yourself up a big plate of spaghetti. You got a big old picture of a plate of spaghetti. <laughs> if anything, it'll make you hungry. Yeah, a virtual spaghetti feed. That's right, buddy. That's kind of like diet spaghetti because it's not real. That's right. I'm virtually satisfied. I, I also have a, uh, uh, a screen print of the uh, rainbow program that uh, you could make pizza with your cocoa. So I remember that. that program. I typed yeah. it in and actually ran it. I think I have it on one of my discs somewhere. <laughs> Ron, yep. you'll have to give us a review of the Coco Cookbook from Tandy later on. The software yeah, that's, an, that. that's a neat thing, too. Yeah, that's really clever software, too, whoever wrote that. You'll have to do a review. I've never really played with it much, so I have it somewhere. But Yeah. We all so love that's, to eat. If that's it and nobody else has any updates or acquisitions, I think we can call it a day. And uh, if, if you're inclined to do so, please uh, hit the Amigathon, contribute a bit of money for the kids, and uh, we'll call that a wrap. This concludes another episode of Cobra Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Calor computer, MC10, and Dragon systems. For all things Cocoa Talk, visit us on the web at cocotalk.live. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live. Consider supporting the show with a purchase of merchandise from our retro swag shop at 8bit256.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, click on the Patreon link on our website, cocotalk.live. 
Coco Talk would not exist without the community, its cast, crew, and contributors. Thanks go to Alan Murphy, Amigos Retro Gaming, Bill Noble, Brian Joyce, Brian Weaver, Curtis Boyd, D. Bruce Moore, Danny O'Connor, David Ladd, Eric Canales, George Jansen, Grant Leedy, James Diffendapper, Jason Reichert, Jim Brain, Ken Reichert, Ken Waters, Mark Bosley, Mark Overholzer, Mikey Furman, Mr. Dave 6309, Nick Morentes, Nick Morota, Nick Morota, Nick Morota, Paul Fiscarelli, Richard Lorbieski, Rick Adams, Rick Eulin, Rob Inman, Ron Delvaux, Samuel Gimes, Sloopy Malibu, Steve Bjork, Terry Steggy, Tom C., and many, many more. Please help support the Coco community. A list of various contributors and resources are available at imacoconut.com. That's I-M-A-C-O-C-O-N-U-T dot com. The original Coco Talk theme song is copyright 2008 by D. Bruce Moore and Greg Sheeler. The new Coco Talk theme song is copyright 2020 by D. Bruce Moore. Both are mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. Coco forever! Stuff. Okay, we're back. Uh, good show, good show. Not super yeah. long. Let's <laughs> uh, we got the three hours thirty six. Yeah, less than four. That's the criteria we're shooting for. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, next week, same time, same place, and. Yeah, it seems like okay. the week came by. Time, same yes. place. Like two days go by, and then we got the show. <laughs> right? <laughs> Wickedly fast. Yeah. Hey, Fred, what are those nuts there back there? Those cocoa nuts on your shelf? Uh, let's see. Like other back, side. Back, other back other back side. Back there. The rocks. No, other sir. side. Oh, the rocks. <laughs> they look like cocoa nuts. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in the past, but uh, one of my side hobbies, in addition to the cocoa, is um, I'm a rock collector. I'm mm-hmm. a bit of an amateur geologist, if you will. And so I've got various different types of rocks that I've uh, collected. Any meteorites there? Um, maybe somewhere. Um, Where is it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, it's turn all the lights out. You'll find it. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, this 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 rock here is called um, Lake Bonneville Tufa Rock, and uh, it uh, it it glows orange under uh, black light. <clears throat> oh yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff. We've got some uh, agates and some and some uh, magnetites. Okay. Any fool's gold? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got fool's gold somewhere. Um, here's some uh, mahogany obsidian. Okay, Ooh. 
Um, hmm. So uh, there, yeah, you. Utah is a great place for rock collecting if you're yeah. a rock hound at all. There's national parks. There's tons of BLM land, and there's all types of. Uh, there's really interesting geology out here. So, um, where do you live? I live about uh, about half an hour west of Salt Lake City, near. Oh, okay. Near uh, near the Great Salt Lake, uh, near the Bonneville Salt Flats. Oh, so, neat. Yeah. So there's a there's a place. Been out and an hour away out in the West Desert, um, where you can find geodes. And um, so, what's the difference between um, uh, the lake there that's salty and uh, one in um, Israel that's dead and it's um, salty? Not it's much. Same? Not much difference. Uh, the The Dead Sea in Israel is saltier than the Great Salt Lake. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. But they're both very salty, and you can you can bob like a cork in either one of them. But yeah, um, we have Manitou Lake here that's the same way. In fact, I think it's saltier than the Dead Sea, if I remember correctly. Yeah, really? Oh, wow, really? Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Salt Lake though is drying up pretty quickly. Here, so. it, it is. Yeah. We have a project well, to pump ocean water in it because it's less salty, so it's not going to do any harm to do that. So I wonder if they're going to. Geez, all of you guys are geologists here. <laughs> well, the Salt Lake uh, water level is tied to rain, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we get a lot of rain. It goes up. <laughs> we don't. It goes down. Yeah. <laughs> and and I understand uh, you can still find uh, living things in the in the water. Uh, in the Great Salt Lake, yeah, they've got brine shrimp and some brown <laughs> algae, but that's about it. That's well, yeah, brine, brine shrimp. Yeah, actually, one of the Sea Dragon manufacturing plants was at Manitou because they had so much brine shrimp. Oh, in that lake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, you know, the, the, like what, 30, 40 years, yeah, like 40 years ago, some ingenious company uh, caught a bunch of them and packaged them up and sold them as sea monkeys. Yeah. You guys remember that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were one of the suppliers for that. Uh, yeah. Long, long gone. We but. were here too. I'm not sure. But yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, right now, uh, the areas around the Great Salt Lake are being mined for salt. Uh, so, you know, there's a decent chance, uh, you go to the store and buy table salt. It uh, may have come from great salt Lake. Uh, like Morton's there. Morton in particular. Morton yeah. Yeah. You know, believe it or not, there's a Morton's out here too, somewhere. Hmm. I've, I've surprised me. Probably by a few different locations. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I still love the fact that salt, which has been in the ground for 200 million years, has expiry dates when you buy it at the store. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, we have that on our water, too. Yeah. Well, kind of a reason for that, because uh, eventually water can start growing things in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you get more for your money then, don't you? <laughs> it depends on what grows in it. Uh, you might more you salad with your water. Really nasty. Yeah, yeah. Some amoeba that you know. Yeah. Uh, you got some free antibiotics or something in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> more than you're bargaining for there. Or Drink me and die. Uh, <laughs> All right. Hey, well, we put a fork in it. Yeah. Yep. Let's hit the button, Frank. All, All right. right. Goodbye.